Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here, as always, to talk about stuff. Yes. This week with a th- with a cold. I mean, last week it was with a cold because I had a cold. I yes. just kept it on the down low. Mostly, I think I may have gotten delirious at some point in the podcast. That's okay. I'm not sure. Your voice didn't sound affected by it, though. I yeah. know mine is. Um, so just go put that out there right now. And there may come a point when I have to mime, and Sean just tries to interpret it and tell you what I thought. Yeah. I mean, that's how we do most of this podcast anyways. The, the listeners just don't know that, because I'm really good at doing an impression of your voice. It's just like, I'm, I'm sad that we have to break the illusion now, but yeah, that's yeah. what happens a lot of the time. When Jonathan ever says something really intelligent and insightful, it's usually just me. Yeah, he's, he's right, he's right. Yeah. Alright, so let's see what's on the docket today, Sean. We've got Doctor Who, as always. Yes. Quick spoiler-free reaction. This season of Doctor Who has been so fucking good, man. And this episode just continues to prove that. Yeah. Yeah, this has been a year with an awful lot of good television in, like, American television. And we're at a point where, like, other than maybe, like, Mad Men and Parks and Rec, which are, like, all-time greats that were going off the air, Doctor Who is, like, up there on that level of, like, the shows I've enjoyed most this year. And oftentimes it is in some ways, just because it's yeah. a show I enjoy watching. But in, like, general, like, qualitatively, I could put it on that yeah, scale this yeah. year. And that's crazy. Yeah, it's been so good. Like, yeah. not a bum episode so far, which is pretty impressive. No. And we'll talk about that more later. Let's see. And then just a lot of other random topics. Uh, and not random. I mean, it's a Star Wars trailer. Big thing in the past week. And it came out kind of right after we recorded last week, like a day after. So we're a little late to it. But hey, the internet is still on fire about it. So why can't we capitalize on it, too? Yeah. Indeed. So we're going to talk about Star Wars. And we're going to talk about some other random things. So I've got my own stuff to talk about. But Sean, what stuff do you have to talk about? I mean, I have, I have not quite finished the Witcher 3 Hearts of Stone expansion. Because that's a... Witcher 3 is a game I really like to sort of like soak in, you know, and like kind of sip. It's like a fine wine. You don't want to just like gulp it down. It's not like when I play a game like, I don't know, Far Cry or something like that, that it's just like I'm just going to sit there and I'm going to destroy myself and just like spend 12 hours straight playing this game and just do everything immediately. Witcher 3, it's like a much more sort of like sober, thoughtful experience. And so, yeah, I've been working my way through that. My impressions from last time generally hold still here that it's a really really phenomenal expansion pack that is they could have charged like $30 for this game and I or for this expansion I would have thought it would be fair because like I have spent probably about 12 hours so far in it and I'm not quite done I'm getting close and like that's really incredible that you can get a piece of DLC that that's has that sort of value to it and the story stuff that I've played so far is really really phenomenal the the expansion story stuff is structured in such a way that sort of like uh, enables you to sort of play in controlled sittings because it's a lot of sort of slightly longer mission chains that take about two to three hours to complete. So the way I've been playing is that I'll like I'll finish that mission chain. I'll be like that was a good healthy chunk of the game that like told its own sort of contained story within this larger narrative, and then I can sort of put the game down and go do something else. And it's been really rewarding. And I just finished a part of it that was. Like, basically a heist sequence that was really fun, where you could, like, choose different people to go on your heist mission. It seems like that whole mission can probably, like, play out in about, like, a dozen different ways, depending on who you pick to go with you and different choices you make during it. So that was a lot of fun. Sounds like a very ideal form of DLC. Yeah, definitely. Like, it's it's really phenomenal. It's Although, like, on the one hand, though, it, it is something that I feel like if you played a lot of The Witcher 3 and you... Are kind of bored with it. There is nothing in this DLC that's like a brand new something that's like if you're the sort of like 
down on The Witcher 3 if you've, you've sort of, like, you know, played 100 hours of it and don't want to play anymore. I don't think there's, like, a much in the DLC for you in that case. But if you're someone who just, like, wants more story in this format, like, it absolutely delivers that at, like, the same high quality you would expect from the main game. Nice. So you just talked about a game you played. I'll talk yes. about a game I've played, and then I've got some stories to tell. We'll, All right. We'll do story time later. Great, I'm but excited. For yeah, for now, uh, video game. I played a new game this week, and I haven't played a ton of it, so I'm not isn't in a review yet or anything. Okay. Just kind of a mild recommendation. Um, Dragon Ball Z Extreme Butoden came out for the Nintendo 3DS. And yes, I had to look up the name of it again before we recorded this, because I can't remember the name of that game. Yeah. It's, I, it's something Butoden, but there have been a lot of Butodens. So, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. It comes with a download code for Super Butoden 2 on the SNES. So, you know, that's how it goes. It's kind of weird. It was You only got that if you pre-ordered from Amazon. And this was actually the pre-order bonus in Japan as well. Hmm. Uh, and so it's the virtual console version of Super Butoden 2 for the 3DS. But it is completely in Japanese down to the oh. virtual console menu system. And it's... Menus, maybe games were just different in the 90s. Like, it uses more kanji than I'm used to seeing in a menu system, so I couldn't, right. I really couldn't play it. Normally, that's not an impediment for me on, like, Dragon Ball Z. I know what Kuririn looks like and shit. But... Yeah, yeah, and usually, like, if you know Katakana, which is one of the, the Japanese alphabets, you can yeah. see it's like, start game is usually pretty clear. But yeah, if there's a lot of kanji, yeah. that's harder. But anyway, the new game, Extreme Butoden, I think I might have mentioned it on the podcast over the summer because they did a demo here in the U.S. Right, yeah, and definitely I did. Loved it. And the full game, I haven't played a ton of it yet because I was still finishing up Persona 4 Dancing all night, which I got my platinum trophy in today. Congratulations. That's, yeah, that's my second platinum I've earned, the first one I've gotten. <laughs> See right. my story on Infamous Second Son yeah. and fuck you, PSN. Anyway, uh, <laughs> generally a good service. Not that night. Yeah. Not that night. Anyway, Extreme Butoden... A lot of fun. It makes such good use of the Dragon Ball license. And, like, the most, like, there's... So, basically, the way the game works is it's a 2D side-scrolling, you know, fighter game. Yeah. Uh, it's made by Arc System Works. And if you know their work, they do really good fighting mechanics and yep. stuff. So, it's a lot deeper and more technical than I think, you know, like, uh, Xenoverse was yeah. or something like that. Um, which is what I like. I, I don't need Dragon Ball to be, like, super technical, like, you know, half-circle X or something. But just yeah, a little more... Yeah, super technical, like... Half Circle X. I mean by... I don't, I don't need it to be a real fighting game. Yeah, that. yeah. I, I know what you mean, but the way you phrased yeah, yeah. it was very silly. No, Half Circle X is easy to pull off. I should probably be saying, like, Quarter Circle XXB, Back Quarter Circle. Yeah. yeah. It's like you don't need, like, 20 different gauges and meters on the screen. That Like, yes. every character has different gauges and meters. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's that, and you make teams, and you have about 25 to 30 playable main fighters, which is what you control. And then... In the hundreds of Z-assists, I've already unlocked a bunch through playing the game and button combos you can do on the main screen, and I've already got more than I can count, and there's way more to unlock, and the Z-assists are everyone else, and you just like hit them on the touchscreen and they come in and do a move for you, but they're all very unique, and they do very specific things in the fight, like you can get the turtle to come in, you know, Kame yes. Senen's turtle, and he will like stop the opponent from moving. Or you can get Garlic Jr. and he will open up the dead zone dead portal zone, nice. and pull them into it and then you can just go pummel them. Stuff like that. Or Chi-Chi will come in and yell about Gohan doing his homework and she'll suck them into something. Nice. So it's really cool. And the Z-Assists are actually my favorite part because that's where they get all these characters. Some of them major, like Tenshinhan is just a Z-Assist, hmm. but he does. You know, he comes in and does the Kikoho. 
right. and stuff like that. That's so cool. Like it's exactly what you would want those characters to do. It's all so creative. And even on the main fighters, there's just so many creative flourishes. Like the people who made this clearly know the show inside and out. So like when Super Saiyan Two Gohan, if he wins a match, it ends with him going back to like black hair and passing out like he does at the end of the fight with Cell. Right. Yeah. So cool. Like just as a Dragon Ball fan, it's every minute of playing that game is just little flourishes that make your kind of heart palpitate with nostalgia and recognition, which is all I can really ask. Yeah, that's like what you're mostly asking for with like a super franchise-heavy game, like a Dragon Ball game. The story mode stuff is weird because you start to unlock the rest of the story and single-player content. You have to play this one little campaign mode, which is, you know, it's it's like the group campaign mode. And you go through ten fights and it goes from Raditz to Boo, as most Dragon Ball games do, or DBZ games do. Yeah. There are not a lot of Dragon Ball nosy games. Yeah. Anyway, but... And at first, because I didn't know there was going to be a bunch more content, I thought it was the worst story mode I'd ever played in a game, because it's just ten fights to represent the entirety of Dragon Ball Z. And, like, the Boo Saga just gets one. And Cell gets two. It's the androids, and then a fight with Perfect Cell. (laughs) And that's it. And they do these, like, super quick little text stories in between to fill you in. And it's hilarious. But then, actually, you unlock and you have, like, a Gohan campaign and a Piccolo Ah. campaign and stuff like that. And there's an adventure mode, which is a new story set... Basically in the time of GT, I would have to assume, but not GT. Um, yeah, but that... actually, is there any GT stuff in the game? Like Super Saiyan 4 goes yeah, and popping it, in? Yeah, it's yeah. all in Z-Assists. Uh, I actually love Super Saiyan 4 Vegeta does an incredibly powerful move where if you pull it off, and he's a Z-Assist, you can wipe them out like from like three quarters of their health bar with that. Seems appropriate for yes. the power scale. Yeah, indeed. Um, and you can even get Super Saiyan God, Super Saiyan Goku and Vegeta. <laughs> Which is awesome. It's like, eventually, like, the power-up stuff is going to get too cumbersome to elaborate on. <laughs> in, like, a way that, like, pe- like people who are not way into Dragon Ball can understand. But. Right. Uh, anyway, that that's Blue Hair Super Saiyan. And actually, it looks like in Dragon Ball Super, the current television show in Japan, they're going to be renaming that Super Saiyan Blue, which is probably good. Yeah, it's so then you don't have to, like, be reading forum posts. It's like, SSGSS Goku. It's like, what the fuck are you people even talking about anymore? Anyway, so... All of that stuff is cool. Adventure mode, like I said, it's set in like the future. It's like a different story where all the villains have come back and you have to collect the Dragon Balls to do something with the evil dragons. I'm not paying a ton of attention to the story. That's where you basically go around this little map and you do fights and unlock people. You have to get S ranks, though, hmm. on each fight to do unlocks. And I can't, I can't get S ranks. Like I'm going to have to get really good at this game because it's really demanding to get those S ranks. Um but that's kind of nice, because I thought there wasn't a ton of challenge to the fighting before then. So, we'll see. But it's a really good game. I love the fighting mechanics. Just the basic minute-to-minute fighting is a lot of fun. You know, if all I had was just a battle mode with all the characters, I would still have bought it and had fun with it. Right. And um, it's really good. If you are at all a Dragon Ball fan, and you at all like playing Dragon Ball games, I know those two don't go together, yeah. necessarily. This is, and you have a 3DS, it's 30 bucks. Totally, totally worth it. It's kind of like with Persona 4 Dancing All Night. Right. It's a niche thing. But if you're in that niche, you'd be stupid not to get it. Right. Yeah. Cool. So, definitely fun. Um, what else? Okay, I saw Crimson Peak today. Okay, yeah. I've, I have not seen it. I knew I said I would make an effort. I did make an effort, but going to the theater is very hard for me. It's a laborious process. So. I understand. And you know, I will continue to make an effort. One day I'll see it. I made an effort today because I had... Uh, not a topic for the podcast. I had kind of a rough weekend. 
and I've just been in kind of a nihilistic hating everything mode. So I'm. I, so now you know how hard it is for me to go to the theater. No, if you're I get in a nihilistic hating mode. Uh, but I was in a mood today where I just needed to get out and go do stuff. So right. I went over to uh, the IMAX, uh, the AMC's IMAX in Westminster. It's not that far from here. And saw Crimson Peak. And actually, I just want to tell that story really quick because I. I've been kind of... I need to relocate and find a new base theater chain because since I abandoned Cinemark because they don't mask their goddamn screens, which doesn't affect a movie like Crimson Peak. It's in a different aspect ratio, but still just on principle. I don't really like going there anymore. Um, Cinemark kind of had been my go-to chain. But with that out of the picture, I was only (laughs) comfortable going to two theaters and they're both in Denver. The Draft House and Harkins in Northfield. That's not a good... I can't... It's not sustainable. Yeah, that's like a... That would make it hard to go see movies regularly. Yeah, I need a chain. So I'm, I'm going to make AMC my regular chain. I went to AMC's Westminster Theater today. Went to the IMAX to see Crimson Peak and also dipped into a couple of other theaters to make sure they're, you know, masking their movies. They still do. Nice. Baseline competency, they have it. Yeah, they're, they're doing the bare minimum at the very yes. least. Uh, and their theaters just look and sound good. I think they're a little pricey, but what are you going to do? Everyone's a little pricey these days. Yeah. Um, but this is also my first time ever going to a fake IMAX screen. Which there are a lot of cropping up. Yes, um, yeah. If you're curious, in the state of Colorado, at least in the Denver area, the only two real IMAXs are at the Colorado Center, which is United Artists uh, Theater, and the one at the Museum of Nature and Science, which obviously does not show, like, Superman or something, you know. Yeah. yeah there. Um, they show more nature movies and stuff. Um, so most of the IMAX screens you see are fake IMAX screens, but... This one was actually, I was kind of impressed when I walked in. They actually made an effort in this theater to, it's not like it was a super huge auditorium necessarily, but that screen, every single like inch of real estate they had the front of that theater, they had turned into a screen yeah. to make that an IMAX, and it made me laugh because it kind of had the problem where light was kind of refracting onto the sides because it was so far, but it looked good. It was fine, and Crimson Peak is such a visually spectacular experience. I was happy to kind of pay the surcharge for that. Really good movie. I liked it. But my first reaction, like half an hour in, was I desperately, desperately want to know how Guillermo del Toro tricked Universal into making this movie. He told them that he was making a horror movie. Like, it's what I assume based on, like, how everyone thinks that it's a horror movie. Even then, horror movies don't cost this much. They're not that lavish. Hmm. And especially on a filmmaker whose biggest hit was not a hit. And I'm talking about Pacific Rim, you know? It's like... It's just kind of funny to me because totally this should have been marketed as a as an art house film. It should have started in limited release and gone to the art house theaters in like New York and L.A. and then expanded from there. And if they had pitched it like that, I think they would probably be making more money, honestly, because then it would be getting word of mouth for the movie it is, not the movie it isn't. Yeah. Because it is not a horror movie. It has definitely scary sequences and very effectively scary sequences, but it's a gothic romance. And... It's like, it is such an enthusiastic and knowledgeable version of the gothic romance structure. You can just feel Guillermo having fun with it. Kind of like he did in Pacific Rim, only right, yeah. instead of, you know, kaiju and robots fucking each other up, it's Tom Hiddleston and Mia Wasikowska fucking each other, and Tom Hiddleston turning on the smolder, and, you know, that kind of thing. Right. In true gothic romance tradition. Like... If the Twilight movies had had a guy who is as good at this as Tom Hiddleston is, they could have worked. As dumb as You're those right, stories yeah. are, if you had someone who you could believe... Like, that dude could seduce anyone. Gay, straight, man, woman. He Like, it's, like dog, it's, cactus, rock, probably. Like, I was just cackling at a certain point because he's... It's a good performance. Like, it's not like he's overdoing it. But in the context, he's doing it exactly as much as you need to. 
Which is kind of overdoing it. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, if you're not kind of sort of overdoing it a little bit, it's not really gothic romance. Exactly. It's an indulgent uh, genre. Like, we need someone to make a movie of all the classic gothic romance novels and just cast Tom Hiddleston as the lead, and he can become like... You know, Christopher Lee was to Dracula or right, something. Yeah. Just have an era where he gets to play all of those, put himself in the records books for that, and go on with his life. And then just go make a bunch more like Marvel sequels where he plays those. Yeah, but it's like, man, if if I, I don't think teenage girls are going to see Crimson Peak. No, probably not. Probably not. But like all the teenage girls who have made tumblers for, of him from like the Marvel movies yeah. would probably love this movie just for him. Yeah. Anyway, but, I mean, again. Like that's like if that is the effect the movie gives you, that is a gothic romance done right. Exactly, and you know Jessica Chastain plays his evil sister. She's so good, and I like Jessica Chastain, but she always tends to play more sober, down to earth, very intelligent, you yeah. know, strong women. And in this story, she is strong and intelligent. She's also batshit crazy. And I've never seen Jessica Chastain asked to completely overdo it and go camp. She can do it, though. She's fantastic. I love it so much. I'm like, I automatically like The Martian more, or this more than The Martian, because that has sober Jessica Chastain, and now I want crazy Jessica Chastain. Nice. Because once you see it once, it's like, yeah, we need more of those. <laughs> so, and then Mia Wasikowska plays the lead. Um, and I've seen the argument that Mia Wasikowska, she's a fantastic actress. Um, if you want one thing to go see her in to reference that, it's not Alice in Wonderland, although she's good in that. It's a terrible movie. Not her fault. Uh, see Jane Eyre. Obviously in a similar right, tradition yes. to this. And it's Carrie Joji Fukunaga's Jane Eyre. Fantastic movie. One of the better adaptations, I think, of uh, a book in this tradition. Because basically it does the middle third of that book. And, yes, uh, because if you're adapting Jane Eyre, you need to cut a lot of shit out of Jane yeah. Eyre. You get basically two flashbacks to her childhood. Yeah. Which, as I understand it, is hundreds of pages. Yes. Literally, yes. Yeah. So anyway, and she's great in that. But she is a very subdued actress. She is kind of all about subtlety and, I think, small character details. And I've seen the argument that that's not exactly right for what Crimson Peak is going for. Hmm. And I felt that. But I also think she's a really good actress. And I kind of like the weird dichotomy between her and Tom Hiddleston. It's not like they're out of separate movies. But they're out of separate orbits enough that that tension does, I think, become part of the film. And I liked that. Um, but it is a beautiful, beautiful movie. If this movie doesn't win the Oscar for production design, there's just literally no reason for that award to exist. Like, and I think any size screen you watch it on, you would feel this, but definitely in IMAX I felt this. You just want to walk into the screen, and you mm -hmm. feel like you could. It feels like you have been brought to the most lavish haunted house ever constructed, and you just get to explore it. And I love that side of it. The ghosts, when they appear, are such cool versions of ghosts and that's something you don't get to say much anymore because right. you've seen one ghost in modern Hollywood you've seen them all you haven't seen Guillermo del Toro's ghosts they're cool and sick and fucked up I like that nice so I like I like a good ghost yeah I think that's clear on this podcast but yeah indeed so I, I loved that side of it it has a really nice musical score that kind of is boy uh, the composer I don't remember his name but he makes use of like the single droning piano note <laughs> to perfect effect you know, all those things that this is a serious movie, it's not a satire or anything, but Guillermo del Toro gets it so completely you have to laugh at it because yeah. you can tell he's having fun with it, even if the subject matter is ostensibly serious. Yeah, um, I mean, that's like the kind of way that you have to do it if you're making a genre film way past that genre's popularity, right. which is like 
I mean, arguably, like, the gothic romance genre was way past its popularity before film even really became a thing, so... Right, and, you know, other than some kind of self-reflexive flourishes and a couple moments of gore, you could take this movie and make it in 1945 as, like, a big early color extravaganza, and I think we would view it today as a classic. Hmm. It really kind of feels like it's it's got its, its era and its voice down pat, but when I say this movie is brazenly non-commercial... That's not because it's not populist. It's just populist for a totally different era. And that's why it's so funny to me that it got made and put in, you know, that I can go see it in a fucking IMAX. Yeah. Because it's, I mean, it is slow. It is like 40 minutes before she gets to, you know, the big haunted mansion where she's married Tom Hiddleston. And that's very true to the genre. Gothic romance doesn't start with the character in the plot on page one. No. (laughs) I have read a lot of these novels. No, it does not. And, you know, the dialogue is stilted in a way that I think is very intentional. It doesn't sound like they're reading 2015 dialogue. It sounds like they're reciting dialogue from a book written in, like, 1900. So, you know, kind of not in the exact era of Gothic literature, but something that's aware of it. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, all of that, it's just, it's it's got it down pat. It's it's very kind of cerebral in a lot of ways. It's a lot of, you know, slow sequences of Mia Wasikowska walking down corridors and kind of considering things. I thought the last half hour was maybe a little weaker just because some of the revelations that come through, they're, you know, they're not all that surprising or anything. They don't really make the movie worth more when you get to the end. They also don't lessen it, I yeah. don't think. But I also think that's probably just true to the genre because it's... Yes, yeah. again, yeah, like everything you're saying is like, right. yeah, I'm just nodding over here. Yeah. So, as a genre exercise, A++... As a just prank on Hollywood, a triple plus. Like, again, I want to know, how did he fucking pitch this? And did he, like, shoot alternate dailies to show to the studio of, like, here's the big gore sequence (laughs) or something like that? yeah. He probably just told them, like, I'm going to have Tom Hiddleston in it. You know how, like, here's, like, like the internet fan base of Tom Hiddleston. Like, look at all these girls obsessing over Loki. Like, let's make this movie? Yeah, and, you know, if you need more incentive, you see his ass in this movie. So... Well, there great. you go. Some, someone is going to buy a ticket for that. A lot of someone's will. Yeah. I really do wonder how many people have masturbated in the theater to him. <laughs> I really... It's I just... Like, <laughs> I mean, I don't know about in the theater. Like, I feel like maybe that's... Maybe that depends on, like, how far your definition of masturbation goes. But I think that number's not as high as maybe you hoped it would be. I'm just saying, this was a big auditorium. It would there be were hard only to about, tell. There were only about ten people in the theater with me... There could have been a chick in the back row. I would never know. Yeah, it would be. It doesn't have to be a chick. No, it does not. Yeah, it definitely does not. It's probably easier for a chick to masturbate in a theater. It, it would be yes, but it's, yeah. Let's just say that women are not the only people who might be attracted to Tom Hiddleston enough that they might consider masturbating in the theater. I'm not talking from experience. No, no. But totally, you if know. you're a dude and you want to, more power to you. I mean, other than that, I mean, no, no, no. <laughs> we should back up. This joke has gone on long enough. I meant... We should the, make it very I, clear. No, we do not condone that in the slightest. You shouldn't do that. Do that in the privacy of your own home. There's nothing wrong with masturbation. But masturbating in public is a crime. I I meant being attracted to Tom Hiddleston. Yeah. And okay. then I immediately realized yeah. where what it sounded like I said. Yeah. Okay, I'm pulling the ripcord on this bit. We are moving on. That's it. Crimson Peak sounds like a really awesome movie. I'll definitely go see it. I'll maybe try to see it this weekend. I can't wait to figure out what the hashtags on this podcast will be. I'm sure you'll have a lot of fun thinking of those. <laughs> All right. Um, what else did I want to say story-wise? Okay. I'm going to save the big story for last. Okay. Um, Amazing Spider-Man 2. 
That's a piece of shit movie. Piece of shit movie. We hate it, and we always take the opportunity to make fun of it when we can, right? Yeah, I mean, it's been a while because I mean, they, yeah. the, the world knew that movie was so shitty that like God struck it down and yeah. made sure that franchise ceased to exist. Well, do you ever listen to the Nerdist podcast with Chris Hardwick? No, but I, I'm a, I'm aware of it. Yeah, really good podcast. He releases like it's basically an interview show where Chris Hardwick does interviews with different celebrities and interesting people, and he releases like three a week. So. I don't I do not listen to all of them because I don't know half the people or I'm not interested in them. But he releases enough that I feel like I get through like one a week. Sure. And one of the ones this week was Kirsten Dunst, who hmm. great actress, one of my favorite modern actresses, probably best known though for playing Mary Jane in Spider Man, the Sam Raimi films. Yes. And so she was on the show and great conversation. If you haven't heard it, she gives so few interviews and Chris Hardwick gets such candid stuff out of people. It was really cool to hear her thoughts on things. And he got her talking about Spider Man and and at one point. She talked about how, you know, he said, you know, why were you interested in this um, when it came around in like 2000? And she said, well, it was actually, it was Sam Raimi because he was this great director who I loved. And, you know, he, he clearly, he had had enough experience. He'd been in the business forever. He was a Spider-Man fan. I felt like we were making a real movie together. And that's why, you know, this was worth it. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And then she goes on to drop the biggest fuck you on Mark Webb and the Amazing Spider-Man, but in the subtlest, most polite way. Okay. Where she just says, like, and that's the difference. You know, Sam Raimi was proven he was tested. He could direct movies. It's not like today where they just grab some guy who made one good indie and let him make a Spider-Man movie. And she doesn't reference him by name, but it's so great. Yeah. (laughs) That is so badass. I, I mean, she's not wrong. She's definitely not wrong. No, and she goes on to... And then they get into it a little more directly, and she says, you know... I haven't seen those movies, but I just don't understand why you would reboot them. And, like, she's not, like, hiding it at all that she has abject disdain for those Amazing Spider-Man films. I mean, I, just... I, I mean, I do. I, like, yeah. I do very much have abject disdain, but I feel like I would have, like, a different kind of abject disdain if I was someone involved with right. the, the franchise previously. That yeah. then, you know, you, it got rebooted, rebooted immediately and clearly went in the wrong direction. Well, because she even, you know, said, and, and this is confirming something that I think had was known and, and is talked about, but there isn't a lot out there about it, which is that they were gearing up to make Spider-Man yeah. 4 with the original team. And she said it was great. She, you know, she said, I was really excited to do that. I was really disappointed when they pulled the cord and I, I would have done more. And Chris Hardwick then asked, you know, would you do one today? And she's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> we're all too old. But yeah. Yeah. Obviously that moment has passed, but it's... And he was joking when he asked the yeah. question. But I just thought that was fascinating because you don't get celebrities just outright dissing someone like that that much. Yeah. Again, didn't name Mark Webb, but I just kind of loved that, and I wanted to share it on here because I didn't like. I, I thought I might see like an article somewhere about that. Like Kristen Dunst just completely disses Amazing Spider-Man, but I haven't, so I thought I'd share that. Great, yeah, so, no, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, um, Amazing Spider-Man Two. What a colossal piece of shit that movie is. Yeah, and indeed, you should think twice when you grab someone who made one good indie movie that has nothing to do with Spider-Man and let them direct a Spider-Man movie. Yeah, you should think about that. Anyway, um, so let's see. What else did I have? Okay. My, I got a brother. His name's Thomas. Yes, he has appeared on this podcast in its previous incarnations. Indeed. We're going to be talking more about Star Wars a little later. But I got a little Star Wars story with Thomas. All right. I'm excited. Okay, so Thomas, I know Thomas. Thomas mooches off me for everything. Yes. I pay for Netflix. Yes. I pay for Xbox, mm-hmm. like all our games. I pay for... All the like online services I use, and then he piggybacks off that. Yes. Uh, including Amazon Prime. Okay. Now, because of that, whenever he orders something from Amazon, I get to see what he orders. 
mostly... It's... This story could go in so many directions from that point. Yeah. Like, there's like a million possibilities and all of them are fantastic. It's nothing bad weird, but it is weird yes. and funny. So, you know, normally it's like stuff for school. It's textbooks. It's things for he's a musician. Things for like his clarinet. So normal stuff and that kind of thing. Then today, I got an email and it said, Your order of Star Wars The Force Awakens dot 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 is confirmed. I'm like, oh, what Star Wars Force Awakens thing did I order from Amazon? And I open it, and it's a talking Chewbacca mask. (laughs) (laughs) And I look at it, and it's... I'm going to bring up the email, because you got to see this thing. So, okay. Talking Chewbacca mask. And uh, it's like, it's not just a talking Chewbacca mask. It's like Chewbacca smiling really broadly... But in a creepy way because the eye holes are cut oh, out. Oh, yeah. Stuff. Okay, yeah. yeah. Jonathan has just brought it up, so yeah. we're looking at it now. So here's the Chewbacca mask, and it's got the eye holes cut out, so it looks like Chewbacca is a ghost. Yeah, for those listening who want to also look, it is called the Star Wars The Force Awakens Chewbacca Electronic Mask on Amazon.com. Yes. So there's, it's, and then if you look at the, like, box, it's got a picture of Kylo Ren at the top, and then Chewbacca shouting. Which is a really sinister looking Chewbacca now because it's yeah. a red background. Yes. Yeah. So you can push down on it apparently and he will roar for you. So anyway, it's twenty five bucks. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> okay, so it's the picture, picture of a guy wearing it. Yeah. That looks very silly. So, you know. Open it wider and the roar gets louder. The page tells us use the straps to adjust fit. You know, looks like a good Chewbacca mask. Anyway, I had to know It includes mask and instructions, which is nice of them. Yes. I had to know. Thomas why did he order you? I have to know what is that for? Did he just send you a text message back? Just like no, I'm gonna Thomas Sean. You're gonna read the part of Thomas. Okay, all right. So here's I'm our sorry. text conversations. These last two. Here's mine. I, I texted him at six o'clock. Why did you just order a Chewbacca mask? Because I need a Chewbacca mask. That's it. That was his answer. Because I need a Chewbacca mask. I mean, it's. I mean, that's the only answer you can really give. I mean, it's not like he's going to save because fuck it, man. I don't need a Chewbacca mask. I just... It has never even crossed my mind to look on Amazon for Star Wars toys. So, like, I wonder, was this for a school thing that for some reason he needs to dress up like Chewbacca? Is it he and his friends are making plans to go see the movie and he wants to make sure he has his mask, like, now? Is it for Halloween? I don't know. Is he just moving to another phase of his life? Like, who knows? He's going to be wearing it all the time. Yeah, I mean... The mouth opens so he could play the clarinet through the Chewbacca mask. I mean, he's in college. He's exploring himself, his identity. It's like he needs room to grow, Jonathan. And sometimes that room includes an electronic Chewbacca mask on Amazon.com. I have an awful joke, but I don't know if I should make it. It's your brother. You feel free to say whatever you want to say. Well, it's our podcast, so... Okay, yeah. I mean, is it is it to wear the Chewbacca? We've all, we already spent like three minutes talking about people masturbating to Tom Hiddleston in a theater. Is well, it worse than that? It's basically the same, because my joke is, is, he, is it to get the Chewbacca mask so you can go masturbate in a the theater wearing the Chewbacca mask? Is that what it's for? I mean, yeah. That's yeah. a certain possible. I mean, Tom Hiddleston's not in Star Wars The Force Awakens, which no. lessens the probability of that, but yeah. But, you know, there are lots of handsome and beautiful people in movies coming out this fall. And sometimes, you know, you just need to be wearing a Chewbacca mask to feel things. Like, I understand that. You know, I'm not here to judge. This is the most off track we've ever gotten. Anyway, let's see. Yeah, that's really weird. I don't know. That's a strange thing to just see having been bought by someone you know. $25 Chewbacca mask. I mean, but now, you know, 
you can be on the watch to see if there's any other suspicious exactly. purchases that come through that's like maybe a big furry suit, you know, like that maybe has zippers in places that you really don't want it to have zippers in. Like, who knows? Who knows? I'm just speculating. Exactly. Okay. All right. Speaking of handsome people in movies this fall, it's I'm just trying to get off this. So last night, it was two nights ago, part of my dark weekend... I decided to cheer myself up and watch my favorite James Bond movie, Casino Royale, okay, 2006. Yeah. I need to it's rewatch. I need to rewatch the Daniel Craig movies anyway. Cause Spectre is coming out. Exactly. And I wound up kind of live tweeting it, not like beat for beat, but just I tweeted some observations. Yeah. Like, I have not rewatched Casino Royale since the show Hannibal started, and Mads Mikkelsen is the villain in Casino Royale, and he uh. plays Hannibal. He is less scary when he doesn't have super pretentious dialogue to read and avant-garde film stylings. <laughs> So that's what Hannibal has going for it. I love Hannibal. I'm, yeah. I'm making fun of both, but he's a great James Bond villain. Anyway, live tweeting Casino Royale. Uh, one of the people who's a listener to the podcast and friend on Twitter kind of responded to me and said um, said something about it. Was I think it was part of the Mads Mikkelsen conversation, and then he I said I love Casino Royale. He said, "Is it really that good? I've only seen uh, Skyfall. It's the only James Bond movie." I said, and I'm like, "Oh." You've taken your first steps into a larger world, my friend. And, and I said... Maybe you should just watch Casino Royale. And that, can, that can be enough. No, but I said, like, yes. if, if you want to get into James Bond, here's my James Bond 101 course, and I listed the movies I think you need to see if you want to get into James Bond. All right. I thought I'd share that on the podcast, because Spectre is coming out. I know not all of you have, have seen as many James Bond movies as I have. But, like, statistically, most of them have not, no. No. And Spectre, obviously, with its title, is referencing, you know, the history of the series. So there's going to be a lot of references, I would assume... To characters like Blofeld and things like that, as this yes. is the return of Spectre after a long legal battle. So, here are my James Bond 101. It's just six films. All right. If you want to get through these, that's a lot easier than 23. Yes. Yeah. And these are these are good ones. These are, like, unambiguously good James Bond movies. These aren't the ones that it's like, this movie is so ridiculously bad that it's hilarious. Not those ones. No, and I, I it's kind of funny because while I was watching Casino Royale, I made a list of all the James Bond movies I've seen, which is almost all of them, and I was ranking them. There's only one I hate and wouldn't watch again. I'm I'm that kind of James Bond fan where I like even the bad ones. It's sure, just yeah. that's me. But James anyway. Bond is like your Doctor Who. For it me. is kind yeah. of yeah. Um, so anyway, here's my James Bond 101. You've got to see From Russia with Love. That's the second movie. It's Sean yeah. Connery. It's my favorite Sean Connery. All the Sean Connery ones are good except Diamonds Are Forever. But this one has the introduction of Spectre. I think they're called Smirsh in that film. Um, but it's got a little Blofeld. It's also just really good. It's set in you know Russia. It's it's James. It's a much more kind of gritty James Bond than you got early on. Like there's a fight where James Bond has to kill this assassin in a train carriage, and it's done like without right, music. Yeah. That is totally the prototype for like Daniel Craig's Bond in a lot of ways. So it's a fantastic movie. You got to see it. Uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. That was the first one they did without Connery. It's George Lazenby's James Bond. He this is the only one he did. He was the Australian model who played Bond. Right. Um, so he's not the best Bond. That movie is in many ways the best Bond movie. It's just got such great action. It's it's got all the skiing action, and I love that they're bringing it back for Spectre. And I love whenever they do ski stuff. Um, it's also the biggest movie to feature Spectre. It's where he directly confronts Blofeld. It's also the one where he gets married and his wife dies at the end. Great story. Uh, it's not a spoiler. It's a really old movie. You've heard of James Bond wife dying. Yeah, I know that. Anyway, spoilers are <clears> things <throat> that people need to get over at some point. It is. Yeah. It, if, a, if the spoiling of a story makes the story less enjoyable, the story is not good. Yes. I actually literally had that exact conversation where I said that exact sentence this weekend. Yeah. It happens. Anyway, great movie. Uh, the Spy Who Loved Me. That's the best of the Roger Moores. It is silly, but it is silly in the best way. And 
I don't think it has any Spectre stuff in it because I think at that point they didn't have the rights. There's a movie later where he kills Blofeld, but there's like they couldn't call him Blofeld. Anyway, um, Spy Who Loved Me, really, really great. And it's got the best Bond theme song, so you can do that. The Living Daylights, it's one of the two Timothy Dalton ones, and it's the good of the two Timothy Dalton ones. Right. It's great. You can watch Bond help the Mujahideen and in, <laughs> inadvertently start Al-Qaeda. It's like Rambo 3 in that yes. way. Yeah. Um, but much better than Rambo 3. Uh, Those for, things are. For Pierce Brosnan, I didn't know which one to pick because you could argue they're all bad or you could argue they're all kind of fun, which I would do. But clearly the most important one is GoldenEye, just in terms of historical impact, right. what it did for the series. It kind of revived a lot of things, and it's the one people know. Um, it's not as good as its reputation would suggest, but, you know, Sean Bean's the bad guy. Yeah, that's always good. That's good. It's that's got, good. It's got the greatly named Bond girl, Xenia Onatop. Played by Famke Jansen. Zenya Anatop, man. It's great. Uh, and then you got to watch Casino Royale. Because, seriously, if you haven't seen Casino Royale, one of the, I think, great movies of the 2000s, one of the great, you know, Hollywood movies of the 2000s, I, I fucking love it. And it's still my favorite Bond film. Um, Wait, so is that one movie <clears throat> from all the different Bonds? Mm-hmm. Is that, okay. Yeah. And really, actually, it just kind of fell that way. Like, those wouldn't be my literal top six, but it's close enough, so... Where would Skyfall fall on that? Would that be in your top six? Skyfall's in my top five. You want me to okay. read you my top five? Sure, go ahead. Yeah. i do that too. Uh, my top five in no order is, uh, I'm going to try to do this off the top of my head, Casino Royale, Skyfall, those two, From Russia With Love is on there, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, and Spy Who Loved Me. Okay. So most of those, but yeah. Um, yes, I feel like that's a good top five for me. I don't know how I would rank them necessarily, but I like that as a top five because it's a little of everything, and the only repeat is Daniel Craig, which I think is earned because Skyfall and Casino Royale are so good. Yeah, definitely. But yeah. yeah. <clears throat> anyway, I am going to do a list of like ranking all the Bond movies at some point before Spectre comes out, but I don't have it ready just yet. So just all wanted right. to say that in case you wanted to watch some movies before Spectre comes out. Little sneak preview. Yeah. All right. My voice is dying. So, Sean. <clears throat> yes. Star Wars trailer. The Star Wars trailer. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about this. What did you think? It was a trailer. It's another trailer. Like, I've, I liked it. I thought it was the best trailer so far because at least we got something more other than just, like, quick shots of, like, TIE Fighters and X-Wings and stuff. But it still wasn't, like... It didn't get me more excited about the movie. Like, I'm still sort of, like... I expect the movie to be good, but, like... I, there's, it's like, the, the super heavy marketing campaign for the movie and, like, the just insane reaction that fans have to it like it kind of puts me off it in a big way of like I expect the movie to be good I'm going to go see it like of course I'm going to go see it but nothing about the trailer was like aha like yes this is going to clearly be like the greatest movie of all time this is going to be like it's the the, you know the coming back of Star Wars after the terrible prequels but like you did get I, I, I thought I liked the little hints of stuff of like Han Solo saying that sort of implying that a lot of the stuff with like the Jedi that clearly Luke has been like off doing fucking nothing or like who knows what happens to has happened to Luke because the Jedi are not a thing yet like there's no new Jedi order like all that stuff remains sort of like in that mythic status that it is in episode four when Obi-Wan is sort of telling to Luke and Luke's like oh like that's an actual thing like the Jedi are real like they have this always been kind of that mythic element in the original trilogy and there are, like, big continuity reasons for how, like, that prequel stuff fits with that. But I did like those little tiny bits you got into sort of, like, the setting that they're going to do. But I'm still slightly disappointed that they're just... They're, I mean, they clearly understand that they do not need to tell you anything about this Star Wars movie to get 
like Fandango to shut down when the tickets are available for pre-order because like everyone's just going to go see it. But if you're just looking at it as a trailer without knowing, okay, this is going to be the new Star Wars movie and everyone's going to see it, there's nothing in the trailer to me that like gets me specifically excited for the movie. I think I'm able to easily enough divorce myself from the larger fandom at this point to just say I was excited by it. Sure. I really liked it. And definitely, I think the hype is overdone. And if I look at it on that level of like, that's all we wrote about this week, it's all that was on Twitter... And people acting like, yes, it is the second coming of... And nobody being able to put together a coherent thought about it. Like, that's the thing that, like, strikes me the most, is that if you go to, like, YouTube or, like, any, or, like, any, like, Reddit or something, or NeoGAF or any forum that will have, like, a thread talking about this, it is, like, a million posts and a million comments, and none of them are, like, a complete sentence, basically. It's all just like, Star Wars is good, It's like, wh- who, like, what has happened? Like, who are these people? You're all losing your fucking minds... Over, like, nothing. Like, it's just a bunch of images of X-Wings and TIE Fighters for the most part. And it's ironic to me because the things that people, I think, are maybe... And I don't want to say overanalyzing, because I do think there's an element of it, the speculation that is fun. And, for instance, I have a friend named Robbie, uh, who's who's in my film school, and he is a little older than me and a a huge Star Wars fan. You know, he was around for the original trilogy and stuff. And a much bigger Star Wars fan than I am, frankly, a fan of anything. His office has a life-size Chewbacca cutout. Okay, kind yeah. of guy Robbie is. He's and, probably got a Chewbacca, a Chewbacca electric mask. Probably. Yeah. But he's a great guy. And, you know, I just love to talk to him about this. And I don't even say anything. I just love listening to his theories on stuff and who he thinks Kylo Ren is and how it ties into this. And I love that kind of pure optimism of just having fun with the story and the yeah. little pieces we've been given. So I like, to, I like the way Robbie approaches it where he's still a sane human being with all of that. And you can do that. I do think, as you say, the internet, it's a lot of incoherent thoughts and just kind of maybe overdoing it a little bit. Yeah. But all that being said, it's ironic to me because what I've loved about these trailers is I think they give you the mood and the atmosphere I want to see, sure. which is an atmosphere of kind of nostalgia mixed with excitement for the new that just makes me intrigued and, and excited to see this movie. I'm really glad that this is the last trailer and we've seen nothing of the story. I'm really excited to just be able to kind of walk in cold. I do think that means the hype is a little out of whack, as you've said, yeah. because there's nothing really in these trailers to... Suggest something so big and new that it's worth shutting down Fandango for, maybe. But at the same time, I liked it. And I think this is a very well-edited trailer. I think it does a great job of just in you know, kind of inspiring that sense of awe that Star Wars at its best should inspire. Um, I love, love, love the moment when the Empire Strikes Back love theme comes in as the Millennium Falcon is flying. And Han Solo says, it's all true. And you have that little speech from, from Harrison Ford. Right. I think that's all great. I think there's some cool shots. I think that fight in the forest between Kylo Ren and new black protagonist, whatever his name the is. The new Jedi. The new Jedi. Um, <clears throat> that is a great shot. And just, I think, the, the, you know him coming in with his cross-guard lightsaber and just kind of bearing down on this guy who clearly has like never held a lightsaber before. And who some... I, the one thing I need to watch this movie for, I want to know how the fuck he got Luke's lightsaber from Empire yes. in A New Hope. Like, how... Like, Luke got his fucking hand cut off as he was hanging onto an antenna, and his hand and his lightsaber fell into the gas giant that is Bespin. Like, how the fuck do you... It would be like if someone dropped the lightsaber onto the surface of Jupiter. Like, how the fuck do you get that thing back? That's what I want to know. That's what's going to get my ass in that theater. It's like, I have to well, fucking know how you justify that. Here's a good speculation point. Okay. Because... 
I see the reason why they would want to give him that lightsaber because sure. that connects Anakin to Luke to whoever Finn I think is his name the yes, new Jedi that's, that's right. and I like that as each trilogy this lightsaber would kind of pass hands but at the same time for me I would almost feel more emotional if he had Luke's green lightsaber Sure. Because at a certain point, I do associate that more with Luke, because that's where Luke completed his arc. Yeah. And that's like, because Luke doesn't actually use Anakin's lightsaber all that much. Like, the most he uses it is an Empire. Right. Yeah. Uh, he never fights with it in the first movie, for yeah. instance. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, but I like all of that. I think it's a very good trailer. And, you know, for instance, I just, for curiosity's sake, I went back and watched the Episode 2 trailer. Um because I remember all those prequel trailers very well, and I, I saw the episode three one recently, um, and George Lucas had such a different approach to cutting those trailers. And part of it is that they're prequels, and so we did know the broad strokes of the story. Yeah. But even then, those trailers just give away the whole plot, beginning to end. They basically, as trailers, what they do is they outline: here's the beginning of the movie, here's the end, and here's some of the things you'll see along the way. But they tell you what the movie is. And that is such a you know diametrically different approach. Yeah. And I think they're much less effective as trailers. Um, because, you know, they tell you what kind of story you're going to get, but at the same time they don't leave a lot of that room for imagination and kind of things to get excited about. So I do like that these trailers are playing their hand in a very specific way. Now, as to the larger marketing point where Disney is being pretty boldly egotistical about the whole thing. Sure. You know, you could argue about that. But I, I get why they produce the kind of excitement they do, and at the same time, I kind of want to tell people to chill. But I don't want to ruin anyone's excitement, because Star Wars is incomparable in film history as something that is multi-generational yeah. and inspires this kind of love. And, you know, if they are able to recapture that and we get some more of that, hey, I'm all for it. I mean, I guess the one other point about, like, is something that... It's like, I didn't, it, I didn't expect this trailer to change anything about it, but it is... And we've talked about this before, but I continue to be bummed out that the new Star Wars movies do not seem to be moving in a new direction for the franchise, you know? That it very much feels like you've got your new Darth Vader, which is which is Kylo Ren, who's now, like, I guess he's, like, idolizing Darth Vader, which I... Like, I'm curious how Darth Vader is actually remembered and, like, how that history is kept in Star Wars universe. See, I think all that sounds cool. I really want yeah, to Yeah, I don't how... think they're going to get into that, but, like, yeah. I think it's a cool idea of, like, how does the rest of the world perceive Darth Vader? Because it's, you don't ever get... That like civilian perspective, kind of in the actual movies, like you obviously get it in the expanded universe, but all that has been exploded. So I don't know how any of that like fits in anymore. But you, you so you have your new Darth Vader, and then you get like you have another character who's presumably going to be your like kind of one of your new protagonists, who is now like on this planet that's like a the, or a, a desert planet, and is kind of a loner and has nothing really going for them. And then like they meet up with like basically it seems like the the, the black guy, the stormtrooper. Seems like he's basically going to be like the new Han Solo, but now he actually gets the lightsaber with the girl basically being the new Luke and then Han Solo basically being the new Obi-Wan. And that's like, if you look at that trailer, like all those characters basically fit into those roles and like that's how they're interacting. And it's like, it's a little bit disappointing that again, like it's stuff, like you said, that it's like you get the Empire Strikes Back love scene while you're looking, or love theme as you're looking at the Millennium Falcon and then you cut to a bunch of stormtroopers, then you cut to a bunch of TIE fighters and X-Wings and it's like, I feel like I maybe would feel differently if we didn't have, like, the prequels and Knights of the Old Republic and, like, all this other Star Wars stuff that did all these different things and had all these different kinds of characters and all these different kinds of designs and vehicles and droids and all that stuff. But it's like, to me, Star Wars is so much bigger than the original trilogy that it's just kind of a bummer. Like, it's exciting in a nostalgic way that we're just getting TIE Fighters and X-Wings again. This kind of a bummer that, like, then you, like... 
well, we're just getting TIE Fighters and X-Wings again. And, I, like, we were there in, like, 1970s. It's like we were there with, like, the, the run on the Death Star. I want to see something that's, like, substantially new. And maybe that is in the movie, and maybe they are being smart about not showing it in the trailers, but I don't get the sense that there is something, like, really, like, a, a big step forward for the franchise waiting in the movie for you. I think from some of the things I've heard, kind of on the rumor and reports side of things... It's it's gonna have that new stuff you want. I think it's okay. use, I think it's using the archetypes to hopefully launch into something greater. In part because J.J. Abrams and everyone at Disney knows this is the first step into something much bigger. Okay. And I think uh, so. I, I I hope it's different. I mean, one thing that happened after this trailer came out is someone on YouTube did a supercut of all the footage we've seen of Force Awakens so far, and it's just about three minutes. Yeah. We've seen almost none of this movie, so. I think they could be being very clever. I mean, again, they could be. That's like, like I said, for sure, that could be there. But like, yeah. and I hope it is. <clears throat> but like, I wish that they would give. I mean, I guess, I guess, let's like, it's just like specifically for me. I wish they would give some indication yeah. of that. And I think it would be different if the atmosphere around it was different. But it is because everyone seems to be automatically expecting that, and the trailers don't necessarily show it. Is that kind of the distance that we're feeling? Yeah, yeah I get that. So, but yeah, I mean, I'm still excited to see the movie. I think it's. Amazing that a movie in this day and age can inspire that kind of excitement where yeah. it can crash Fandango. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Like, and just stuff like, uh, so the Alamo Draft House, which is a theater we have here in Denver, but also in Austin and lots of other places, um, their website crashed. But also, if you look, like every Draft House, that weekend it's coming out, that's all they're showing. They're just showing The Force Awakens on like eight screens. Right. And on opening night, the Thursday, from like, I went to try to buy tickets at the Draft House from 7 p.m. to 11. They have about 20 screenings. They're all sold out. Like, immediately. I, yep. That is nuts. Yep. And I... Yeah, this movie's going to break some fucking records. <laughs> yes, for sure. And you know what? I'm glad it's not going to be Avatar or Jurassic World anymore. Yeah, I would, like... This will be a better movie than those. Yeah. And even if it's not, I would rather have it be Star Wars. Like, <clears throat> at least, like, I, my love for Star Wars is undying. Like, you can't do something to Star Wars and make me hate it. You can burn... Like decades of history in the franchise, and I'll still fucking go see this movie. I don't care. Yeah, yeah. So definitely interesting. I look forward to more Star Wars discussions in the future. Um, I want to know how he gets that fucking lightsaber. How the fuck does that happen? Maybe we'll just have to do a whole episode about that. Maybe he just bought a replica on Amazon. Like you know what? Galactic Amazon. I should at the very least go ask Robbie and tell the, our audience what he says because I'm sure, sure yeah, he's I've, thought of that. Yeah, he has whole thoughts about like Kylo Ren. And Ray and Finn and their like parentage as it relates to Han Solo and Leia. I mean, yeah, there's like been like persistent crazy. rumors about yeah. them being the the Solo twins. That's like that's possible. I think that would be a really weird move if like they're going for like a Jason and Jaina from expanded universe. Basically, yeah, that'd be interesting. But anyway, but uh, let's move on. So it's later... all the Yuuzhan Vong man. They're in the background. The only day this week that wasn't dominated by Star Wars. I th- oh, one last thing okay. before we can move on from Star Wars. Yes. Did you see the Star Wars Binks Awakens parody trailer? No. Do you want to pause and watch it? No, I think I have a basic conception of what it is. So fucking great. I guess this guy did another one for a different, like, earlier Star Wars trailer, but he did a much bigger one for this that is a shot-for-shot recreation of the Force Awakens trailer with Jar Jar as the main character, and it's just so fucking great. There's a shot, like, where the X-Wings are going by, and he's hanging off one of them going, blah, 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 you know, that kind of thing. I love Jar Jar. He is. I do too. He is way. an amazing character. I'm not saying he's a good character, but he is one of the most amazing characters ever. Yeah. And my favorite tweet from all the Star Wars shit was this one tweet I saw on Twitter, which is final shot of The Force Awakens. Kylo Ren holds burnt Vader helmet, 
removes his own. Two fish ears plop out. Misa gonna avenge you, Annie. <laughs> How great would that be? That would be pretty fantastic. Talk about something new for Star Wars. Yes, I would be like some like crazy fucking meta Star Wars. Yeah, where they'd make. Because the thing is, between that tweet and the Binks Awakens trailer and some of the other Jar Jar related shit I saw, if you make enough jokes, eventually you have good ideas. Yeah. And the thing is, if you actually did one of those things with Jar Jar, you could totally redeem him as a character. It would, it would be fascinating. <laughs> like, what if Jar Jar actually, like, was a senator in the New Republic and really was kind of on Darth Vader's side at a certain point. I don't know, because it was his friend Anakin. Yeah. Or he and really... he's kind of an idiot, so he doesn't really think about the implications <laughs> of everything else. Exactly. Fuck it, at some point, you know, he basically wasn't in Star Wars 2 or 3. Yeah. I want the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead thing, but with Jar Jar, where he's like in the background watching all the big shit go down. Yeah. It'd be great. Are there Clone Wars episodes with Jar Jar? There, there's a few, yeah. I will watch the shit out of those. Yeah. They're, they're, they're like, particularly, they're kind of the weakest episodes okay. of that show because they don't do the slapstick particularly well. I just don't think Star Wars does slapstick particularly well. It's never been good when they try it. Don't say. <laughs> but, like, I, can't, I wish I could remember his name, but the guy who voices Jar Jar, that dude is fucking dedicated to that role because he, every time it comes up, he fucking shows up. Like, if you ever are watching a cartoon or playing a video game where Jar Jar Binks is in it, it is the guy from episode one is doing that voice. Like, he always does it. He is fucking there 100% of the time, and I fucking respect the shit out of that. His name is Ahmed Best. Yes, that's right, yeah. I didn't mean to put a in there on Ahmed. That was my cold. That sounded sure, racist. Yeah. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that was not intentional. Anyway. But yeah, mad respect to that guy. Yeah. No. I, again, Jar Jar, amazing character. Kudos to that guy. All right. The only day this week that was not dominated by Star Wars coverage was Wednesday, because that was October 21st, which has been dubbed Back to the Future Day, because... Rather notably, that is the day in Back to the Future Part 2 where Doc and Marty go to the future yes. to save Marty's kids. Yes. We've got to do something about your kids. Indeed. So, um, that should have been cool and the internet made it a little annoying. What are your as, thoughts? As, yeah, I, I essentially agree. It's like, I really like the Back to the Future movies. They're great, great movies. There are no other movies like them. But, like, I do... I mean, I'm so glad. I, it's like I have the same feeling as when the last Harry Potter movie came out and when the last Twilight movie came out. I mean, obviously they're doing Harry Potter again, so, like, It's very whatever. different, though. Yeah, so but yeah. hopefully, like, the, the zeitgeist doesn't come back on that because I don't like those things and I didn't like the fan attitude around those things. And I was happy when it was, like, it was over. I'm happy that, we, that this day has happened, that Back to the Future Part 2 is in the past officially it's over. Again, I love those movies to death. I love them as much as anyone. But I hate how people never shut the fuck up about them at some point. It's like, they're really good movies. But, like, stop. I don't need to know. Like, I don't need to hear all the fucking, like, oh, we don't have hoverboard jokes. It's like, I don't need to do that. I don't need to do that every single year. I'm so glad it's over. It's done. Yeah. We didn't invent hoverboards. Of course we didn't. You, why would you want a hoverboard? You'd fucking kill yourself on that thing. It sounds like the stupidest invention ever. It's over. It's done. Watch the movie. It's good. It's, it's a part of history. Yeah, it's kind of funny because I did... I wasn't really in the mood to watch Back to the Future, but I felt like I should, on that day, watch a little of I, I intentionally didn't watch it out of spite for everyone else. Okay. I'll go watch it on some random other day. Well, I just thought, like, it. this is a once in a, literally once-in-a-lifetime opportunity yeah. to watch this movie I, I really like in this setting. So, I did, and I watched, like, the first half hour when they were in 2015, and then right. I turned it off. Because I was not really in the mood. Yeah. But And those movies, I do think you have to be in a specific kind of peppy mood yeah, for them. Yeah, yeah. 
like I said, there, there's no other movies like the Back to the Future movies. No. Um, but it was kind of cool when he says, you know, we're, we're here on Wednesday, October 21st. I'm like, that's the day we're on. And that's just kind of neat. But more than anything, what made me laugh is that all this talk about what 2015 is going to look like. People making their stupid hoverboard jokes. And Pepsi doing its stupid Pepsi Perfect thing. Yeah. And everyone trying to capitalize on this 2015 shit. And what's funny about Back to the Future 2 is that they really didn't even try to envision the future. No. It is the most 80s version of the future you could possibly imagine. And when that movie came out, it was 1990. <laughs> and I think that's part of the comedy. Is It's so 80s, you can't even take it seriously as any of that. Like... The whole thing that's funny about hoverboards, people don't use skateboards now. That's yeah. not part of the zeitgeist. It's douchey college kids, like my stoner roommate from freshman year, <laughs> yeah. who think they're cool standing in their room doing flips on their stupid-ass skateboard. People don't like people who skateboard anymore. Like Marty McFly, if you were making him today and you made him a skateboarder, you would be making him the douche everyone hates. Yeah. He wouldn't be the cool kid, you know? Yeah. And the whole, like, cafe 80s thing. We don't do that anymore. We don't do cafes that, like, recreate the past. Yeah. You can still go to a diner, but that's a relic of... It's like, like we don't... No, we don't even go outside anymore. We just right. buy everything online and we stay on our homes where it's safe. We don't go out there where there are fucking hoverboarding maniacs and holographic sharks. Like, all the screens are still low-res tube TVs. <laughs> they didn't even bother to do the Stanley Kubrick thing of projecting them on flat screens. Yeah. So, like... They didn't really try to envision the future at all. It was just like, take the 80s and see what it would be with a little more technology. And that is what I think makes Back to the Future 2 kind of a wonderful time capsule. Yeah. But why would we have hoverboards? Why would anyone work on that? Skateboarding is not a thing anymore, you know? It's... We should be making jetpacks. That's our impractical like mode of locomotion, mode of locomotion for the future. Exactly. Where we don't kill ourselves with it. So look, Back to the Future is great. The it was just like being watching it be ground through the capitalism machine, yeah, and the internet machine was a little depressing. And just like the, like the nostalgia thing, it's just getting so hard to deal with at yeah. some point. It's the same thing with the Star Wars stuff. It's just like I'm tired of seeing things that I've seen being repackaged and marketed to me. It's like I can't, I can't deal with this. Like make something new, make something new, please. Move forward in life. Speaking of moving forward in life, yeah, let's go ahead and move on. To talk about Doctor Who, Let's talk about which Doctor is a long-running franchise, obviously. Yes, but, but always moves forward and always evolves itself. And I think that's probably been one of the great themes of this season, is being self-reflexive as to who the Doctor is and what he means and what he represents and what he is on the inside, without looking backwards. Yes. Uh, and I think that was a big theme this week, too. So this week is sort of a part two of our third story this season, The Woman Who Lived. Yes. Written by Catherine Dragena, directed by Ed Baglazette, and uh, starring again Maisie Williams from Game of Thrones. Yes, and it is a no Clara, basically. She gets a little bit in the end, but yeah, basically a companionless episode. Indeed. So, Sean, yes. my voice hurts. What did you think of The Woman Who Lived? Okay, I thought it was a fantastic episode. I think it's not quite up to the level of the previous episode, The Girl Who Died, but that's like, I think that episode is like really amazing and the more I think about it the more I love that episode so like saying it's not quite up to that standard is not a criticism like saying that's bad in the slightest but yeah I thought it was a really amazing episode I thought it was a, a fantastic follow up in the sense that it did not I mean it basically had nothing to do with the girl who died it ran with the premise of that 
the Maisie Williams character has been made immortal, and then you go visit her and see what has become of her. But, like, the process of that means that I love that they made it so it's like, she is completely disconnected from her past at this point, because it's been, like, over 800 years, I believe. And I loved that. Like, I thought they handled the idea of a shielder, that character, becoming immortal and living on Earth for 800 years through this, like, huge portion of Western Europe's history and, like, referencing that and using that to inform that character and then also using that as a springboard to analyze a theme that has been done in Doctor Who a lot but has never been done particularly well, I think, and certainly not done as well as this does it, of looking at how immortality affects the Doctor and, like, how that affects his existence when he is spending all his time with people who are not immortal. And obviously the Doctor is not, then Time Lords are not literally immortal, but in comparison to human lives, they might as well be immortal. And actually, the Doctor's kind of immortal now. Like, who knows how the new regeneration stuff works. Right. He's got at least, you know, like 12 more. And yeah. He could get more after that, too. He's got a solid 50 years in, like, the programming TV time left in him, I guess. Yes. Until Stephen Moffat III has to, like... Yeah. Come up with some way to retcon that. That's that should be like a new Doctor Who episode. Is the Doctor like traveling into a parallel future of our actual world and like assuring that Doctor Who stays on the air so that he can still exist in his own universe? Yes, I really. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I really liked this episode. I think it's kind of weird. This was in some ways my least favorite of the season. Hmm. I do have a couple of little issues with it, but we are talking about six episodes so good. Where yeah. it's such matters of degrees, where this being a mild disappointment on some levels is only in relation to the others this yeah. season. And I still think it's better than most episodes of Doctor Who. Yeah. In Modern Who, at least. So, there you go. My problems with it were just that I think there were some elements of the actual, like, plot of what like the, the Doctor the and Maisie lion was. dude. I just thought it was a little awkwardly paced and moved a little too fast near the end. And I thought some of those plot mechanics and some of the emotional beats with, like, Sam the... Smith Sam Quick. Swift the Quick. Sam Swift the Quick. Um, just not fully earned, but that's not what the episode was fully about, so it doesn't super bother me, because yeah. what it really is is it's a dialogue between the Doctor and Maisie Williams. It could have been a bottle episode with the two of them in a room alone, and it would have been just as good. I mean, yeah. it's this dialogue between the two of them, and I think you say, you know, it's a companionless episode, and yet Clara hangs over it so powerfully, and I... This was not my least favorite of the season, now that I think about it, because it has one of my favorite moments, which is the Doctor's look at Clara at yes. the end of the episode yes. broke my fucking heart. And this is where I want our conversation to go at some point, is okay. I think they have fully built up and earned that this is the companion loss that is going to hurt him. Sure, yeah. And I can... I didn't believe it with Rose. No, I, I, definitely I, not. I didn't fully believe it the way they did it with Amy. I... And, you know, with the other ones, I think they did it okay. Uh, and, you know, throughout Doctor Who history, obviously how he reacts to companions is a varying and fluid thing. Yes. But if he's going to be broken by a loss of a companion, it will be for Clara Oswald. And I get that. And this is such a deeper kind of love than he would ever have in that heteronormative way with, that he had with Rose or something yeah. like that. Because this is love that goes so far beyond that for him. And connects him to something that he thinks he's lost within himself. And it's amazing that you can have an episode mostly without Jenna Coleman. And yet you get to that last scene. And I think it was a phenomenal scene. And she feels like the most important figure in this episode. Yeah. And like like she dominates that scene. Like her character dominates that scene. And you're right. Like 
it is a companionless episode, but the entire episode is about companions and companionship. Like, companions both in, like, the normal sense of that word and in the sense of, like, how Doctor Who uses them. Like, Doctor Who the show and Doctor the, the Doctor the character. Right, I mean, it's... It's because it's this thing where the Doctor knows that he is going to lose Clara someday just because she's mortal. Yeah. We know that Clara is leaving because we've read the news reports. Yeah. But either way, this is an episode about that kind of transient nature of things. And again, it's an idea of taking something fundamental to Doctor Who the series, which is change Mm -hmm. and transience and the impermanence of things and interrogating it and saying, but what if it hurt too much to go on? Yeah. And I think that's where we're headed. And good God, if if this r- general ramping up of emotion we've been having really does pay off at the end, this show's going to make me cry really fucking hard at the end of this season. Yeah. <laughs> Although one of the things that I really love about this episode is that it can both, like, it can absolutely be setting that up for, like, Clara dying or, like, whatever might happen to her when she has to leave the show. But at the same time, like, like... Th- in a weird way, we could never see Clara again, and I think this episode would still be just as powerful as it is. Absolutely. Like, it's like the the conversation it has is so internal that that look, like you said, that, that Peter Capaldi and the Doctor gives Clara at the end of the episode, it's like, that could be like a foreshadowing look that like it absolutely can be read that way, and like certainly will be read that way should like something like that actually like a tragic death happen with that character. But at the same time, like that look says so much not just about Clara but like all the companions and his relationship towards companions and like it's everything like that like that entire episode is in like contained in that look at the very end yes okay so Sean let's back up yes um so the episode you know you said this one doesn't necessarily feel like it is completely connected to the last week like it's you know it's not a continuation of the plot for instance yes yeah definitely one of the things I loved is how they start it where it's just, you know, she is the nightmare now. Yeah. She's in this setting, and the Doctor happens upon her by chance in a phenomenal opening sequence yeah. for just Peter Capaldi being funny. Yeah. And it feels like this episode, it totally belongs in this spot in the season. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with it. You could also have aired it at the end of the season. Yeah. You could do it three seasons from now. Wherever you did it, like, its connection to the previous episode would still be strong enough that you could kind of air it in any order or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I like that about it. Mm-hmm, definitely. It, it does. It like gives the episode a sort of like timeless feel to it. In yes. Terms of like yeah, but it's so sort of like freewheeling. Like it could, especially like with him not having Clara with him. It's like who knows what he has been doing. Right. Clearly, before he's come to this, time point. has passed. Yes. Clearly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I mean, what else to say about that opening sequence? I mean, his whole thing about like I, I will listen to you the next time, and then he's looking at his device like, okay, I didn't catch that one either. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, I I do always love. If there's been quite a bit of it this season of. Peter Capaldi, like the Doctor, being it's a very Doctor thing to do, where he is so enthusiastic about one specific thing that he has blocked out everything else around him. It was very much the same thing as the the note card scene in uh, Under the Lake, that where it's like he's so entranced by the idea of these ghosts that it's like he's not paying attention to like everything else that's going on, like the emotional feeling in the room. It's like here, it's like he's so obsessed with like, okay, I just have to find this little like gadgety thing. It's like, who fucking cares? Like, there's someone with a gun, maybe? I don't know. Like, who cares? Yeah, it's, I mean... I've got science to do. The other wonderful thing, though, is that they're clearly, like, piece by piece, he's always trying to be a little better. And, like, yes. yeah. he's like, he knows this is bad. He's like, I'm, he really does seem, like, apologetic, but it's also just, this is his nature and he can't deny it. Yeah, exactly. I love that. He, 
Peter Capaldi can go between the drama and the comedy sides of this so fluidly. It's just beautiful. Yeah, just like that's probably that is like the number one requirement for any actor to play the Doctor. It's just like you have to be going from saying something that's really funny to being like super deathly. The galaxy is going to blow up serious within the drop of a hat. If you can't do that, you can't play the Doctor. Exactly. So, anyway, he and the Nightmare, who is now calling herself Me, meet up. Yeah, Lady Me. Another recurring thing this season, a piece of dialogue that should be fucking stupid, yeah. that they make work through good writing. Yes, and, and, and a solid performance that is yes. like the hand of a lesser actress, like the whole Me thing. Like, not only would it have seemed corny, it would have been very confusing given the wrong delivery of like what she's actually saying. Right. Well, let's talk about that. Okay, yeah. So, last week, you just called her Game of Thrones girl. Yes. This week, you're calling her Maisie Williams. Yes. Is there a reason for that? I mean, yeah, because, like, clearly, they created that character for this episode, not for the last episode. Like, she's right. convenient for the last episode. She's certainly essential to the plot of the last episode. But that character exists so that she can become immortal, so that she can be in this episode. So, clearly, like, you can understand why they would have cast this, like, very popular young actress who's in Game of Thrones, to play that role when you see how much she is, like, asked to do in this episode. Because, like, the, the character of a shielder here is so complex and there's so m- much to it and it's a, a character that's so far outside, like, the realm of human experience that it, it's a character kind of like the Doctor that, like, you need some actor that's incredibly talented and can tap into something that it feels like a lot of actors just can't because, like, how can you to portray this kind of character. I think she does a phenomenal job. No, she's really good. And if you've seen her on Game of Thrones, this is a very... You can tell why they wanted Maisie Williams for this, because as on Game of Thrones, she is good at projecting a wisdom beyond her years and beyond what her physical appearance would suggest her experience has been. And it's really put to good use here, to the point where it's another case where I'm thinking, if you wanted to do The Doctor as a woman, you would hire someone like Maisie Williams. Yes. She's too young at this point, but like at some point you could do something like that. Yeah. Um, and then you could do a whole crazy, like, flashback thing to this episode. Yes. I mean, there is the weird thing where I think, you know, Maisie Williams is either 17 or 18. She's young. And on Game of Thrones, she's playing someone who's, like, still 11 or 12. And I think, naturally, she just reads younger. She does not look 18 to me. She looks a little younger than that. Yeah, I agree. And it does feel like the part was written for someone slightly older, because it is hard for me to imagine her as a mother, even if that's biologically possible. Right. Um, so that was the only hiccup, but that's not her fault. It's, it's obviously the performance matters above all else, and it is a really good performance. And all of that other stuff just melts away. Kind of like Peter Capaldi's physical appearance, that doesn't so much matter. He's ageless. He is yeah. 2000. He's all those things. And Maisie Williams looks 18, but she's, you know, 800. And yeah. seeing them, the two of them kind of clash together, it's exactly what I said. Every season on Game of Thrones, they pair her up with a different older actor and have them do kind of a duet, and that's what they did on Doctor Who. Yep. And it's really kind of glorious. Yeah, it definitely is. And, like, you know, she she holds her own in, like, all those scenes. Like, there's yes. no sense of, like, that I feel like, especially with, like, a younger actor, you can definitely get that sense of, like, when you have a like, powerhouse like Peter Capaldi that they take the scene. Right. It's like, that does not happen at all. No, she she doesn't give an inch, and he's not going easy either. Yeah, no, yeah. Although what's fascinating about this episode, and I think it gives us an indication of the future, like post-Clara, too, is that this is the really the first time we've seen any extended Peter Capaldi without Jenna Coleman. Yeah. And yeah. his performance is so defined by her, I thought we saw a lot of different shadings of the Doctor. Mm-hmm. And I liked that. Like, I think Maisie Williams brought out something very different in him, which is this even more kind of naked and vulnerable side to him where he just, he has kind of this, 
guilt that he can't quite reckon with in this episode. Yeah. Because on one hand, he doesn't... I don't think he feels bad for saving her. Yeah. But he does feel bad because he put her in a situation where she might have become something terrible. And he doesn't blame her for it. He blames himself. Yeah, because there's so many things that the Doctor could have done to have made it a lot easier. But because the Doctor's the Doctor, he of course he couldn't do it. Right. And so, I mean, you just have a lot of interesting conflicts. You have that whole side of it, but also... Well, why doesn't he take her with him? And, you know, there's a lot of things he could do. He could take her for one day in the TARDIS and drop her off somewhere she think might be fun and those opportunities exist but then you get to the end and you hear his explanation and you hear her response to that and it does ultimately make sense yeah and it's a very organic part of his character yeah i agree and i thought that was a great i mean it's what the whole episode is really about and it's, it's it was a fantastic mystery to keep like driving it forward of something to just sort of ponder while you're watching it is what is the answer to that like why not take her like why because the doctor is does not give that answer like, he's so reluctant to, because she asked that question, like, a billion times over the course of the episode. Not in an annoying way, in a way that's like, of course you would be asking this question, because it's like... Because as an audience member, I feel like you want him to take her away. Because, especially after you get that bit of her diary, and you, like, really get a sense of how trying this experience has been for her, it's like, fucking just... Dude, like, come on! Like, you... This is a Tuesday! Like, you take fucking strayed robot dogs and you go travel the universe for fucking hundreds of years with them like go take fucking Maisie Williams with you like she's cool and and you're wondering why and it's like you get like and as the episode goes on like I feel like you get little bits of insight as he sort of like crumbles and is kind of starting to give the answer like when he says you know because it wouldn't be good I love that that answer because it's so abstracting like it, and it's frustrating but it's frustrating in a good way of like why would it be good like what do you mean and I kind of am seeing what you're trying to get at and then by the time the episode comes to its end like you definitely like it all clicks into place you know and there's so much good silent acting going on yeah. between the two of them because throughout all of that each question and response Capaldi has such this like pained look on his face yeah where clearly he wants to take her on yeah. some level he would so love to give into that and give her what she wants and make her happy and on some level make himself happy and I think he can't even put it into words at the start. He yeah. just knows it wouldn't be right, but he can't quite say why. And then he finally spits out, you know, because it wouldn't be good. And the way he says that, it's with this, like, loathing in his voice, but not for her, for him. Yeah. And then you get to the final scene where they're kind of finally seeing each other as equals, and he can finally vocalize it because she is kind of a mirror for him, and he realizes, I think, what the concrete reason is. Yeah. And that whole evolution, and also just the look of betrayal on her face where it's her keeping hearing him say this and this guy who is a god to her in some ways it's yeah. kind of like meeting your creator i mean literally because he yeah. gave her eternal life and it's like your creator rejecting you and what do you think of with that and and why she would go to the length she does in this episode all of that is beautifully played and there's no spoken words for any of that that's yeah. all on their faces and that's so good and you know it's it's not something just you know American cable dramas can do. It's something silly British sci-fi shows can do, too. Yeah, I mean, it's a kind of story that only Doctor Who can do. I mean, exactly. like, literally, for so many reasons, right. you cannot do this in any other format. Yeah. And then, and something that, like, adds to, like, all that element that we've been talking about is with Maisie Williams and the way that A Shielder is written, there's something that I feel like they did not go with the sort of, like, cliche anticipated route with this. Like, I love that she's... I mean, she is kind of angry, but I love that she is not, like, overly emotional. Kind of at all in this episode. Like, there are a couple of moments where she breaks down, where it makes sense, where she kind of breaks down emotionally a little bit. But she is so... 
because she has been through so much and like has seen so much and her experience has been so strange because of also the fact that she still retains a normal human body and mind but she just has this elongated lifespan that she can't remember most of that shit anymore because of course you can't like you, sometimes you can barely remember what happened like 10 years ago imagine if you were 800 and trying to remember what happened 300 years ago during the 100 years war like it, it would be impossible like you can't recall that many de- that much detail and so there is this sense of like where she has just kind of like emotionally blocked herself off in so many different ways that again like it, I feel like it was not what I was expecting that character to be like when we met her when she was immortal it was very kind of understated in a lot of different ways. Well, they could have gone so many different directions, and I think that's one of the things we said last week, of that last kind of revolving shot around her through time, Yeah, is that it is both sinister, but also readable. Like, it could mean anything. Yeah. They could go in, they could go in a direction where she becomes, like, a big bad, and I think you would believe it. Yeah, which was kind of what I was expecting was her to, like... I mean, because she's kind of involved in the evil plot a little bit, but, like, the evil plot's so in the background that's, like, not even really significant. Like, I was kind of expecting her to... Yeah, like, kind of be going after the Doctor and steal his TARDIS or something. But that's not it at all, and I think... Maybe that's why this is an episode that definitely, and it's true of many this season, the more I think about it, the more I like it. And I think part of it is it is so disarming in its scale when it starts. I mean, it really is a two-hander dialogue piece. Mm -hmm. It's got a little bit of action... but and, And a little bit of, you know, slapstick here and there, but mostly it is so small scale... Even for, and I think this season of Doctor Who has mostly gone pretty small scale. Yeah. Again, the climax of the Stephen Moffat two-parter is a dialogue between the Doctor and Davros. So, you know, things like that. Um, And I like that about this season. But even here, I thought this was, you know, clearly this was a lower budget episode. It's just fewer sets and all those things. And I think at first it's a little disarming because those possibilities are so wide and then the result is so intimate but that is clearly the smart thing to do yeah. because you're probing something much larger than you could get through a big story where she becomes, you know, the Master 2.0 or something. Yeah. Yeah. I like the idea of the Master 2.0. Well, it's like, you know, what we said last week where you were complaining about the Ronnie and saying that's just when they couldn't get the Master back and yeah. they did the Ronnie. Yeah. And it's kind of like you could have done a Master kind of thing with the Maisie Williams character if you hadn't already brought the Master back. Yeah. This would be another immortal who, like, has a reason to hate the Doctor. Yeah. But they didn't do that. Anyway, yeah, I really like the direction they went with this. Um, I mean, you have some, you have those fun scenes where, again, like, the set pieces are very small. Like, they have to go rob that person's house. And right, yeah. in terms of incident, nothing really happens. It's just the two of them talking as they go along. And her wearing her, you know, bandit mask and the Doctor putting on his sunglasses. <laughs> yeah. Which, can he even see through those things when it's pitch black? Who knows? Like, it's his version of when Matt Smith would, like, would stare at his sonic screwdriver as if there's a display on there when there obviously was not. Yeah, that's like Peter Capaldi putting on the sunglasses and being like, it is night and you are inside and there are no lanterns lit. Like, there's no, like, you could barely see if you didn't have the sunglasses on, dude. Like, take the fucking sunglasses I wonder if that, like, annoys Peter Capaldi on set. Or if it's just funny. You know? I like to get the sense that he's way into it. Yeah, he's probably Because he seems way into it whenever he puts on the glasses. <laughs> yeah, he seems just so, like, childishly excited. Yeah. The Sonic Sunglasses was something that's, like... I was so I was very trepidatious about it when it first got introduced. And just kind of like, well, that's weird, but let's see. Let's kind of roll with it. And every time they come up, I like them more and more. Like, I I like that they, they de-obfuscate and make obvious the role the Sonic Screwdriver has in the episodes. And, like exposes them in that way because it's like you don't just sort of take it for granted 
And I just, I, I like how it fits in with the Peter Capaldi's new costume and him playing guitar and stuff like that. There is this midlife crisis aspect to this Doctor that I feel like the Sonic sunglasses just, they feel natural to me now. They're also, they're a character detail. Yes. They're not a magic wand. Exactly, yeah. And the Sonic screwdriver in Modern Who and in a lot of classic Who is a magic wand. Yes. It's not really a character detail. You get a little, like Matt Smith was able to make something out of it. Like when he looks at it, that is an 11th Doctor kind of flourish. Yeah. But it's much stronger when it's part of his attire and he wears them, not to use them for their sonic function, but for fashion sense. Yeah. That is much more fascinating. Because the Doctor never, like, took it and put it in his lapel for fashion sense. He would do that with a piece of, you know, celery. Yes. But, um... And again, the thing that makes it work is that they are the cheapest, shittiest piece (laughs) of fucking plastic sunglasses you have ever seen. They're such shitty sunglasses and that's what makes it... So amazing that there's nothing remarkable about them in the slightest. It's actually extra great now because he broke them last week yeah. and he went to the trouble of making another one just as shitty. Yeah, because I I was thinking that it was something I was actually going to mention last week that I forgot to of like like asking whether or not that was just going to be their way of getting rid of the Sonic sun, Sonic sunglasses because maybe Stephen Moffat had felt like he'd made the point because that was also a co-written by him. I kind of like that they didn't take that opportunity. Because then it also it works really well because since this episode takes place like some indeterminate period of time later, that there is the sense that like of course he would have the sunglasses back because he would have just fixed them and he's been on like a dozen different wacky adventures and now he just happens to be like in like 17th century England encountering highwaymen. I know we talked about this last week, but I yeah. really do love where a lot of these episodes are just starting mid-adventure for the yes, Doctor. Yeah, it's just such a great mode and Capaldi, because of the the kind the specific kind of energy he brings to it, it's really fun. To just come in into the middle of something with him. Yeah. Yeah, like I said it, last time, it reminds me so much of Classic Who in this great way. Of that, I do just love the sense of, like, that the Doctor's always on some sort of crazy adventure. And especially, it, it's, it allows so much room for your imagination to fill things in. And it's so evocative in that sense. Especially, like, in this case, when Clara's not with him. That it, it sort of, like, triggers that imagination of, like, what has he been doing? Like, like what is Clara doing right now? And, like, what does the Doctor, like... What is he like when Clara's not around? And I really like that you get that opportunity to sort of see some of that. Here. Oh, I love that because I yeah. like that you get the sense in my mind that he probably went to Clara and said, hey, you want to hang out? And she said, I'm sorry, I'm busy right now. It was school stuff. And I'm sure she said it very nicely. Yeah. And then he went away and he became obsessive about finding some cosmic Yeah, it's student. like he hit something on his scanner and like caught some weird type of radiation. It's like, oh, what's this? Let's go over here now. And he's probably been doing it for weeks and weeks. <laughs> I mean, he might have been doing it for years, for all you know. Like, that's the other thing I love about it, is that it takes away that time scale aspect of, like, especially with Christopher Eccleston and David Tennant, there was this sense of, like, these Doctor's incarnations have only lived for, like, five years or something, because it's, like, the time's so constrained. Whereas this is, like, you have no idea what the fuck he's been doing. He, like, he might have had a dozen different companions in that time period, and you just wouldn't even really know. Yeah, and, and I just, again, I just like that, you know, Clara's busy, so he gets obsessive about finding some cosmic doodad. Yeah. And it's, and of course he would. And it leads him here into this adventure. So, eventually we do get the stuff with Tigra, or whatever he is. 
the lion I, guy. He reminds me of the, the, that old video game series, uh, Wing Commander, which had live-action cutscenes, and they had Kilrathi, which were the aliens. He looks exactly like one of those. Like, just a big, like, bipedal lion guy. It definitely follows this season where all the writers and directors clearly have a love for, like, people in bad suits. Yeah. This one didn't quite work on me the way... I mean, it definitely didn't work on me the way the Fisher King did. Like, that fucking thing was awesome. The Fisher King is a little masterpiece, I yeah. think. Yeah. <laughs> this is, like, it's a little bit... I, I guess I'm not, like, so into bipedal feline aliens anyways. Like, I always think that's kind of like a lazy alien design, but... I want a shirt. I'm not so into bipedal <laughs> feline aliens. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but hopefully you don't get an email that says that Thomas ordered that off of Amazon at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Where that was the Chewbacca mask? Yeah, he's way in more into, like, canine. Yeah. But... <laughs> yeah, no, uh... But yeah, it's never like an alien design I'm that into. And that's maybe we should like talk about that now for a little bit since it's kind of come up. Is what I, I think is the weakest part of the episode, it, but not in a terrible way because it's so in the background, is the Kilrathi, like Lionel's plan, whatever the fuck that guy's name is. There is a great line, though, where Peter Capaldi calls him like Lenny the Lion or something. Yeah. That was great. Uh, no, and I agree. I, I was a little down on it just because every time we went to that, for one, I hate to complain about this. I hate to. This okay. episode, the the low, this one was so noticeably lower budget than some other episodes this season. Yeah. It just distracted me by comparison to those other episodes. Normally would not be a problem. Still, much better production standards than three years ago. But you know, um, I mean, yeah, it doesn't look like they smeared like Vaseline on the lens or whatever, like two thousand five Doctor Who looked like. Right, exactly. But like, there's just scenes where, like, like the Sam Swift scene, the one where you meet him. It just feels like they didn't have enough time to shoot it. Where like. I, there were so many shots like last week where they had these beautiful angles and these very evocative things. And here, that scene felt like it was filmed in about 15 minutes and it yeah. felt a little rushed. Where there is some good writing there and there's some crucial stuff because Sam Swift is an important character yeah, here. Yeah, very much so. Um, but I didn't feel like I got a... Like, it didn't feel like that scene breathed in the way it needed to. So again, not saying it's a bad scene by any means. It just felt like it needed to breathe a little more. And then all the stuff with the lion guy... It wasn't so much the costume, it's just every time we saw him, it was so quick and it kind of felt so truncated. Like, when he dies, it's like he says a line off screen and then is zapped away. Yeah, basically. It's stuff like that, where it just feels like it's a little too rushed and underdeveloped. Where it is an important side of the episode because it's where, you know, Maisie Williams has turned in her sort of nihilism. Yeah. Um, but that didn't... <clears throat> so, like, her... Like, I think... Where it mattered, like her turn back to we have to save these people, yeah. that works. And like, mm -hmm. especially because of, I think, how Peter Capaldi plays it, just joyfully like, yes, she's not lost. Yeah. Because that says something for him, too. That's great. But then some of the stuff surrounding it just felt a little underdeveloped. Yeah, I agree. And it's something that, again, it's not a huge problem. Like, I absolutely agree that, like, the production value stuff doesn't feel that great. And some of the direction doesn't, like... Like you said, it doesn't feel like it's bad because it's the same guy that directed the last episode, which was fantastic. But, yeah, you're definitely right that it feels like it was a little bit rushed in some senses. But, yeah, like, the writing is always there, I think, like, throughout. Other than... Like, it's something that I don't... I guess I did... The reason I don't have a problem with the Kilrathi guy subplot, like, that whole thing, is that... It feels like it's a slightly worse version of what the last episode, The Girl Who Died, did, of using this very, very, like, super standard, literally already done alien invasion plotline just with fucking minotaurs instead of uh, lion people last time. It's a, like, you're just using that cliche Doctor Who alien invasion plot as this, like, 
piece in the conversation and as this like leveraging point to move the characters in the way that you need to move them. It's just like a very sort of like practical decision in the writing because like you know, as much as I would really love to have like a version of this episode where you don't have that at all and it is basically just the doctor and a shielder and like a bottle kind of episode where it's just them in a room talking the nature of like it being a TV show means that's never going to happen if well, you want no, that you need to go to Big Finish you need the stuff with yes. with that here and I agree like Big Finish could make that work because it is an audio show yeah but even then I think it is an important side to it here that she yeah. would turn to being a Doctor Who villain the archetype matters yes yeah. because he's worried she would become that you know yeah um, and again, I'm not saying it ruins the episode for me by any means. If it impacts it at all, it's like, if I were to give this a letter grade, it would be an A- minus instead of an A. That's, yeah, exactly. that's all I'm saying. Like, if yeah. last week was an A, this is an A-. minus. That's an, only a disappointment if you're holding it up to a certain standard, and even if you hold it up to that standard, this is still damn good Doctor Who, so who do we, who cares? Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, even if it's not my favorite, like, as we say, bipedal feline thing yeah. isn't my favorite thing... I will always appreciate a silly monster costume on Doctor yeah. Who. I'm, I, I really like that he could breathe fire. Because yes. there is no reason, absolutely no reason that this dude could breathe fire. He's a cat. Like who, if he was like a big lizard dude, I would buy it. It's like, why the fuck would you have a big cat, man, breathe fire? How is that associated with cats in the slightest? I have no and, idea. And I do like how much of a cartoon he is where like... Yes. Of course he betrays Maisie Williams And he basically yeah. just says that Like duh You know He's basically at that level Yeah And of course there's gonna be This little you know Mini alien invasion And the cheap ass looking portal And stuff And you know It all works on a certain level Yeah So there you go And you know Then it leads to a lot of Good final scenes Like I don't think Sam Swift was developed As much as he could have been For the importance He plays in the episode But then when they're Talking about him at the end I felt a certain emotion For it just because You can tell Maisie Williams Cares on some level Or has some relationship With this guy And is now rethinking him And I really really Liked the scene Before that Where he's going to be Hanged And he has to just He's like And because I think I don't remember The name of the actor But he's a stand up Comedian in in, uh, England That's awesome And so Like it's literally He is giving a stand up Routine A comic routine To this audience of people To prolong his hanging Which I thought was like Sets up the, the, the discussion at the end so well Because he's The thing that Sam Swift the Quick is there for Is that he's The human Like he's the prototypical human in this narrative Of that like I, I mean it's not the most subtle thing in the world He's Swift the Quick he dies Like that's Like they die fast They are mayflies Like they blink out They're like smoke like she says they, And they blink out in a moment That's what a human life is To you when you've lived for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years And like there's something about that character and that moment of like choosing to make this using humor, gallows humor, again, literally, and terrible, just awful puns to like grasp onto these seconds of life because he knows he's like, he knows he's not going to get away. I mean, he does, but there's no way he's going to, he has that knowledge that like that opportunity even exists. He knows he's just stalling for like seconds and extra minutes of his life. It's felt like that is so beautiful and poignant. And I like that they don't have to like, it's like like they set it up so well as a part of the like the sort of the argument between the characters that it just exists for the audience to observe as a piece of evidence effectively in the debate and is not brought in in a super sort of like ham fisted way of them like hitting you over the head with like that's what that scene is it's just what that scene is no and it's very good I think if I had a complaint about how they handled Sam Swift it would probably again be that first scene with him yeah because I think introduced. that scene maybe also is a little too one sided like I think he seems like such a nothing. In that first scene, in terms of like how Maisie Williams views him, 
that the debate over whether or not she would consider killing him, that it needed to be something just slightly more substantive, because she doesn't see all the gallows humor in that same yeah. way. Either she's not there for it, or if she is, she's focusing on something else. Well, b- but, because the gallows humor thing doesn't sway, because she's still so focused right. on yeah. getting her portal. So, like, his right. life means nothing to her at that yeah. point, where it means everything to the doctor. But I like the idea that, you know, again, after she does it, she immediately feels horrible and really wants to save this guy, not just to save the others, but because she realizes his life had value. Yeah. And I think just if there was some indication of that in their first scene of, like, some kind of back and forth that was a little less one-sided on mm, yeah. on her part, um, that might have done it more. Um but again, I think where it plays, I do like that it's just this overwhelming of, she thinks she can take a life, but then the moment she does it, it's, this hurts. This hurts too much. I yeah. still have that heart, and that's what the doctor was hoping for. Yeah. And again, as soon as she asks, she help, he helps her. I love that side of him here, too. Yeah. Where he is, you know, he does not care how strongly she betrays him. He is there for her when she asks, and I really like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. that. And then they have that great last scene in the cafe together. Or the cafe. <laughs> the, like the, the tavern. The tavern pub. together, yeah, yeah. Tavern together. And uh, get a little Jack Harkness reference. Yeah, which was weird. Like, and I've seen this reaction so much online where it's like... Okay, the, the, the writer for this episode wrote episodes for Torchwood. She That's actually, why. She there, wrote right? the yeah. good episodes of Torchwood, basically. <laughs> like, the two... She wrote the two good episodes of Torchwood. I mean, that is literally true. And But the doctor saying, I traveled with an immortal for a while is like... No, like, because the most time you spent with Captain Jack Harkness was before he was immortal, and then he was, like, in one episode after he was immortal with you. Other than, I guess, then also in the season four finale he was. It was like, it felt a little weird. The only reason it rubbed me kind of the wrong way is that I thought he was setting up talking about Romana because he traveled with another Time Lord. I was thinking that, For two too. seasons. It's like, come on, man. It's fucking Romana. Well, He's one of the best companions ever. Here's the other thing. Do you seriously believe the Doctor remembers Jack Harkness? Not really, no. Is there any way he remembers Jack Harkness? I mean, not really. Come no. on, that is, especially this Doctor. Like, of all the people he's going to remember from that era of his life, yeah. it's not Jack Harkness. He probably barely remembers Rose, and if he does, he feels ashamed about it. Yeah, I still. They need to have be the twelfth Doctor and Rose, and just have him be <laughs> utterly dismissive of her because that was just how. We have to, like, I want to be right in that. Because I still see people that are, like, obsessed over the Rose-like romance stuff and think it's like, how how come he never brings up Rose? Like, she's so important to him. It's like, no, that's why he he never brings her up. Because he doesn't even fucking remember. Like, he doesn't remember. It's like, oh, yeah, there was, like, I think I knew someone who ended up in a parallel universe once, maybe. Yeah, it's the whole Jack Harkness reference. It's something that feels right on the level of who wrote this and what the show's history is. Yeah. But in terms of character history, eh, a little more questionable. Yeah. But it's Romana, a, man. Romana. It's okay. I mean, hey, if they wanted to bring Jack Harkness back, I actually think that actor would play off Peter Capaldi beautifully. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And you could do the thing where he's like, I don't remember you. And then they have to get yeah. reacquainted. That could be funny. But um, I would watch John Barrowman hit on Peter Capaldi for 45 minutes. I would watch that. I'm not embarrassed to say that. No, that would be great because Peter Capaldi is so asexual and wouldn't get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, but let's see. What else do we have to talk about here? So Maisie Williams is going to keep living her life. Sam Swift might live a little longer. He might not. I yeah. like the thing. That's that was one of my favorite bits of writing in the whole episode. Is the Doctor starting to like make that argument and explaining that, and then like by the time he gets to the end, he's just given up trying yeah. to explain it, being like maybe. 
I don't know. And she says, it's like, well, you don't even know. It's like, I, it's all, it's hard to keep track of all this stuff sometimes. <laughs> it's like, I like, it's like this weird bit of honesty from him where you do sometimes get that sense when he says that stuff in other episodes that he's just kind of making it up. And I like that they're just like up front with this, like, I don't fucking know. Like, how the fuck would I know how this, like, like fucking patch from this warrior race that repairs a person's body interacts with this interdimensional portal that, like, uses the, the power of a person's life to make it? I don't fucking know how these things fit together. I didn't know that that would save him in the first place. Two things he had never heard about until, like, three weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. it's like, I, he's smart. He's not that smart. Right. Yeah. No, that was great, and... But it's also, it speaks to how well that relationship is fleshed out in, like, one hour that yeah. she can see through that. Yeah. And it's a great little moment. I mean, definitely just, they could bring this character back someday, the Maisie Williams character, and I think you could build another great story around it. Yeah. Or this could be it. Either way, she's a really just great kind of one-off figure in the life of the show. Yeah. Because of that chemistry that is made, really, again, because this is the one where she's significant within the course of 40 minutes. I mean. Yeah. 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 And another episode, I should say. Whatever little problems I had, pacing-wise, again, not an ounce of fat on this thing. It moves yeah. by really fast. It's like sometimes Doctor Who episodes can be a chore to get through, as we all know. Yeah. Whether you're talking classic or modern, not the case this season. Yeah, I mean, I swear, like, in, like, the first ten minutes of this episode, you, like, get, like, you know, like, the Salem, well, not the Salem Witch Trials, but, like, Ancient Witch Trials in Western Europe... It's like you get the Black Plague, you get the Hundred Years' War. It's like you get this whole thing with like her three children having died and like all that shit. It's like three minutes and they've explored this character's history in a way that's like very satisfactory and doesn't feel rushed. No, yeah. Exactly. Really impressive. All right, so then we have the final scene where Clara's in the TARDIS again. The doctor's jamming out on his guitar. Yep. So I love, I fucking, I love that character detail so much now. Like it's so perfect. And I... And there's something about like the way they were shooting that scene when he's playing the guitar in the TARDIS alone that like I think the round things on his walls now are basically an amplifier because they look like it. They look like the, the I forget what it's called, but the sound thing in an amplifier. I think you're probably right. Yeah. That is probably an intentional detail. Yeah, because they weren't there. That's like the one thing they redesigned about the TARDIS is they yeah. put those things in the walls. I'm pretty sure what that's what they are now, which is if that's like intentionally why they did that, that's fucking perfect. And I can totally imagine the Twelfth Doctor installing those for that reason. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's and I just I lo- again like stuff about like like being evocative and like allowing your imagination to sort of like fill in gaps. I love the idea of like when he's alone, he's just sitting there like playing the guitar on his own and just sort of like when he's mulling things over. I think that's it's really cool. It gives you a yeah. sense of like what the Doctor is doing when he's kind of on his own and not actively on an adventure to sort of like chill out for five minutes before he like encounters another alien race invading like our dimensional plane or something I will say something that I think is funny about the Peter Capaldi doctor this season is that he's made my like dream scenario of having a Hugh Laurie doctor one day completely redundant it's because a really good done, point he's done all the things that the Hugh Laurie doctor would do like yes. play the guitar and wear the shades and be sarcastic and all that shit yeah that's a, I did not make that connection. It's very true. Yeah. Like, because I still think, and I think it probably would be a mismatch just because Hugh Laurie is like one magnitude more famous than Peter Capaldi. Yeah. And I think maybe a little too much to play the Doctor, but... And like House is maybe like a little too similar to what you would want. Right. Like, yeah. But either way, he would make a great Doctor, but now I feel like it would be very redundant. Yeah. But it's it's hilarious. Like he's he's getting all the he's taking all the other distinguished British TV actors and doing what they would do with it in yeah. one go. Yeah, he is owning that role. He, he really is. Yeah, but that last scene again, 
Yeah. So beautiful. It is so short. It suggests so much. It Be- says so much about his relationship with Clara, like in so many yeah. ways. Because it's like it's one of the disadvantages of this season being structured this way as opposed to last season is that like all you kind of like starting mid-adventure all the time means you don't get a lot of sense of like what Clara is doing in her downtime and don't get a lot of the Doctor and Clara on their own. Which again, like that was a huge part of the last season so it's fine that like it's a different focus and I prefer that they do it this way. But it's really nice to get this like brief little moment at the end of this episode where the Doctor and Clara are just having like this nice chat the way that they would at like the beginning of an episode normally last season or for the last half of Matt Smith's season. Yeah, and I, you know, I think context is everything. Because if Series 8 did not exist in the way it did, you couldn't do this season this way. Yeah, exactly. The foundation exists in such a way that I think a lot of it is about being evocative, about those in-between spaces, what we don't see versus what is hinted at. And I think, in some ways, I think their relationship is just as rich this season as it was last year. I agree. But just in a very different way. And it's a way that has evolved naturally out of where the storytelling has taken them. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's a shift, because this is the halfway point of the season. Yeah. Um, next week is looks like it's going to be a little more Earth-based. Got some Zygons. Got some Zygons in there. Maybe that'll be a more Clara-centric thing. And I think this would probably be the right moment to do that if you were going to do it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, one way or another, she will not travel with the Doctor forever. Yes. And I think it's weighing on him, and it's weighing on us, and I think it is so fascinating because, good God, they have earned that. Yeah. And I think, again... That's what we say about Rose when we talk about... It's not that we have disdain for your enthusiasm necessarily. If you love those no. characters, that's fine. But at the, we're, all we're saying is like on a critical level, I, I don't think if you look at like where Rose was in season one of Doctor Who with Chris Eccleston and then where yeah. they took her in the first David Tennant year, I don't think that's an organic extrapolation of the character we met or who evolved. And I actually Like think, you don't think the scene in like the Impossible Planet where they're talking about living their life together, going out of yeah. the stars when they think the TARS has been destroyed, that that is a natural act- extrapolation of their relationship? No, and the thing is, I think Rose was the perfect companion for series one. I yes. think she's a really good creation. I think Billy Piper was always good in the part. It was never her fault. And I think she and Chris Eccleston had a certain kind of chemistry, which was, you know, just the the feeling friendship again and being emotionally reawoken. But I think making that leap to love and sex and marriage and all those things is unnatural for this character. Yeah. But I think the way they've done it with Clara, and I think part of it is because you get rid of sexual attraction and that helps. Yeah. But also just that it's more than that. It's it's this very emotionally vulnerable, as we've said, doctor uh, having someone in his life who is his compass in so many ways and feeling like he would be lost in a very real sense without her and being scared of that, that's fascinating. And that's yeah. earned. Yeah. And it's like, and again, when, like going back to the beginning of this discussion, it's that look that he gives at the end, which is just like, it, it's it's such an amazing moment because I love how, because you can contrast that with like five minutes ago when he's having this really like beautiful philosophical conversation with the shielder about like, you know, they're mayflies and they're, I mean, they're having the, they're making the argument that I made in my top 100 stuff thing about death being the most important thing. Like, it's the same thing about, like, is the fact that life is fleeting is what makes it important, what makes it valuable. And, like, if we were together, we would lose that perspective. And he's making that argument, and it's like it feels so right and natural and poignant. But then, like, at the very end of the episode, it's, like, undermines that argument in a certain sense because it's, like, it's the reality of it is not easy. Like, you can say all those things... It's like, again, it's like true of like that top 100 stuff thing we did. It's like, you can say, make this argument, and it's like, it's really beautiful, and I believe it. I think it's true. 
but that doesn't make it easy to like 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 act it out in your life you know it doesn't make it easier the fact that life is fleeting when someone you really care about dies like yeah. that's like the fact that like that doesn't help like that's not really comfort in those situations you know? no i mean it's it's the it's the thing that's the line the doctor always and eternally straddles which is the cosmic and the intimate and he has this cosmic perspective more than anyone else in the universe because yeah. he has seen time from the beginning to its end and he knows the value of transience and all these things and yet he is capable of this these intimate one-on-one connections and none of that stops those losses from hurting yeah and i think that's something again doctor who can get at in you know, such a unique way from the rest of narrative storytelling because it has that kind of cosmic perspective on things and because he is alien and because he has a different perspective than the rest of us when the humanity comes out it oddly hits much harder yeah definitely so, yeah. All right, we're at the halfway point of this season. Yep. Is it time to just make some superlatives? Sure. Okay. <laughs> Let's. This is the greatest thing ever made by humanity. No, but I'm just okay. saying you said something to me before the yes. podcast that I, I wanted you to say here too about. I mean, the... yeah. I mean, if the rest of the the season had average or bad episodes for Doctor Who season, this would still be one of the best seasons in. I mean, kind of Doctor Who history, and certainly in the history of New Who. Yeah, because Doctor Who is just naturally this up and down show. Yeah, it's so because every episode stands on its own merits. It's like naturally you're going to have bad episodes and good episodes. But yeah, I mean, I would say I I say that naturally you have bad episodes and good episodes. So far that in this season that has not been the case. Like every episode has been good. Well, and like for instance, I've previously pointed to series five of Doctor Who as the best of New Who. Because it's a season that has a really strong arc and it doesn't have any notable bad episodes. And I still think that's true. It does have several down episodes yes. where I just think they're a little low energy or they're not perfect or they're just not all that memorable, like Victory of the Daleks or Vampires of Venice or something like that. Yeah. The average quality is very high that season, but there are a couple of just less memorable ones. This is six episodes in a row that are really good to flat out great. Yeah. And that is a rarity. I mean, in general, like, they're kind of. In a different season, each of these episodes could basically be the best episode of that season yeah. in a lot of different ways. Yeah, it's it's not exactly like having six The Doctor's Wife in a row, yeah. but it's close enough that you're kind of floored by it. Yeah, exactly. And like it's, it's doubly so because they're basically all two-parters. This one like feels the least two-party of all of them so far. And yet the two episodes are in such conversation. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely in conversation, yeah. but, like, but they don't need to be connected at no. all to be in that conversation with one another. But like... Like we said before, New Who has historically a problem with a lot of two-parters. In, and actually, like all of Doctor Who has a pacing issue with the multi-part format that it traditionally has had. Of there being one episode that like is like boring, basically. That there's a lot of nothing kind of happening. And it's all set up and there's no payoff within that like episode. And it's like that... Has like there's not always the case. Like there are definitely a lot of. I mean, Stephen Moffat's episodes in the RTD days were really good two-parters, but there's still lots of like really bad, completely unmemorable two-parters, like Daleks in Manhattan, that we have to bring up every time we have this conversation. Fuck it, you just mentioned the Impossible Pit a couple minutes ago. Yes, that's a terrible that's, two-parter. That's another one. Yeah, that is spectacularly bad. If you want to talk about a boring first part. I forget what order they go in. Impossible Planet. I think it's Impossible Planet and Satan Pit. Because if the first one was called Satan Pit, it would kind of give the whole thing away. Yeah. No, that nothing happens in the first hour of that. Yeah. Is that the one where you meet the Ood? Yes, that's the first one. That the okay, Ood that's from. all that happens is you see the Ood and they look kind of cool. Yeah. And then like they've brought the Ood back so many times that like I kind of don't like the Ood anymore because <laughs> it's like 
it just feels like the Ood is like another rubber costume they have in the back, like in the the closet that they can just whip out whenever they need an alien in the background. And it's like, how is there the Ood everywhere? Like, it makes no sense that this alien species is like has populated the entire universe. Like, what the fuck is going on? That's honestly a detail I love. That that's just the costume they break out whenever they need a random background extra. And I kind of love the idea that the Ood are just these random like migrants of the galaxy. Yeah, just hanging out. So weird. And we're at a point now where the Doctor doesn't even give them the time of day. Yeah, because, like, we used to have episodes that were about the Ood. Do you remember those days? Yep. Planet of the Ood is okay. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah. Anyway, um, but yeah, super good season so far. Yeah, like, I mean, because, you know, we were talking about uh, when we were doing last season's episode discussions that, you know, see, we both feel that season eight is a really, really strong season of this show. But even that one, like, if... You know, like, Into the Dalek is not an amazing episode of Doctor Who. Like, Into the Dalek is a worse episode than any of these. I would say Robots of Sherwood is a worse episode than any of these, even though I like both of those episodes quite a bit. It's like, that right there in the first half, like, episodes two and three, and then also Time Heist is in the first half. Like, all three of those episodes are good episodes of Doctor Who and, like, are fine, but they're not at the level that these ones have been, you know? And I think just as a season, this, again, ironically, by being much less overtly connected this is a much more cohesive season than i think new who has done in a while yeah and it's been done with a delicate enough hand that i don't even see how they could fuck it up in a major way like there could and totally might be a down episode i mean who knows like i i the zygon next time preview was the least excited i've been about any of the next time previews yeah, but you can never trust exactly how those. Yeah, but but so far I've thought that all like the previews have looked fucking awesome, and all yeah. the episodes have been awesome. So who knows? Well, who knows? It, but it could also, you know, it's it looks like a, a kind of maybe they're going to do the same thing where they're going to tell a unit story and they're going to tell it really well. Yeah, who knows? Um, but what was I going to say? It's just you know I feel like there's not even the opportunity this time for Stephen Moffat to do something way too big and stupid at the end because I don't know where that would come from. Yeah, like in series eight, he was building to it. Yeah, because you had those work. really shitty, like, yeah. missy cuts in, like, a couple yeah. of the episodes about, like, people dying and popping up yeah. here. It's like, who, what's going on? And especially if you assume that the finale will be about Clara's departure, that's something I would expect him to do well. So, yeah, again, the Amy Rory departure didn't go super well, but that's, that's a that's different because thing. That's because that was season seven. All, like, everything about season seven didn't go well. Well, and the thing is, I don't think Angels Take Manhattan is a bad episode by no, any means. No, definitely not. It's just, it's one where he's having to say goodbye to characters who had so overstayed their welcome. And he's having to say goodbye to the characters for, like, the third fucking time. Yes, yeah. So, this will be very different. So, again, I just, I don't think we're going to get a case where, like, the Doctor has to stop an Earth invasion with Cybermen again or something. That just doesn't seem like, I don't know where that would enter into the equation. Yeah, like, because the the series arc for this one is just, like, the very subtle character dynamics of, between the Doctor and Clara and how those have been evolving. Like, yeah. that's it. Like, there's no bad wolf. There's nothing like that, you know? Yeah, and I've... There's been some hints out there about things he's planning for the finale, and it sounds fascinating to me, and I cannot wait to see that. Mm-hmm. But I'm also excited for next week, because, again, I almost don't even care what's next up to the preview show. Zygons? Whatever. If They're, they're going to probably make me cry at the fucking Zygons. <laughs> The, the way this season is gone? Yeah, like, it It just reminds me of how insane it was that he put fucking Zygons of, like, all the Doctor Who monsters in the 50th anniversary. It's like... 
<laughs> Let's bring the Zygons back. And you know what? They're pretty okay in the yeah. 50 special. And, and like, don't get me wrong, the Zygon episode, like the one, because like, they're only in one serial, they're in that Fourth Doctor one. It's a really fucking good story. Like, if you want to go watch some like Fourth Doctor, Doctor Who, like, go seek that one out. It's really fun. It's like I have nothing but affection for the Zygons. I just still fight it because there's, you know, this whole gaggle of like dumb rubber costumes that Doctor Who villains had that like were around for one serial and then they never brought those monsters back. It's like I just love that it's like fucking like 30 years later let's bring the Zygons back. I'm all for it. Yep. Alright, so we will talk about that next week. We will also be talking about Halo 5. Yes, excited. Halo 5 is dropping on Tuesday. I'm so excited because it drops on Tuesday but I've got it preloaded so Monday night I am ready. I'm going to play some Halo 5. I love that a major Halo game is coming out and I don't know a Fuck nothing about the story. Yeah. That is, I love the way they've marketed this game. Because it feels like it could go in so many directions and I'm just excited to see what it does. And I'm, then, I'm pretty sure Halo 5, I'm pretty sure it leads into Star Wars The Force Awakens. Okay. I'm pretty sure they, they hooked those franchises up. I am probably more excited for Halo 5 than Star Wars. I, I am, yeah. I mean, Halo is kind of my Star Wars. So, there you go. Um, but anyway, definitely excited for that game. Drops tomorrow. Uh, we'll have some talk about that and other things, I assume. Yeah, it'll be another week full of stuff. 